If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Coming to you from the city of the weird. Exploring topics from the esoteric and unexplored to dimensions unknown. Shining a light of truth on the darkest corners of our reality. Welcome to the Curious Realm. Well, hello everybody. How you doing this week? Chris Jordan coming at you live from Austin, Texas here this Tuesday night. Uh, it's been a great Tuesday. Happy Mardi Gras out there to all of you Mardi Gras, all you runners who've been up since about 3.34 in the morning. Um, well, doing what you do with Mardi Gras, drinking hard. Um, hope you caught all them chickens. Hope you're busy making a good roux for them right now. Uh, my people are from deep, deep Louisiana. And uh, man, next year, my my son will be just old enough to go and run in the children's Mardi Gras run. And it is really tempting not to just go do our typical live Tuesday night um, live from the streets of Mamou, Louisiana, from a real traditional Mardi Gras, chasing chickens, things like that. Um, stop on by, check all that out on my HC Productions YouTube channel, folks. Uh, I put out some great videos many years ago, but... Welcome to this week's episode. I am very excited for our guests. Uh, in the second part, after commercial break, we'll be talking with Ryan Edwards, cryptozoologist out of San Antonio. We'll be chatting with him about science of cryptozoology. Like people forget the fact that cryptozoology is a scientific field. It's, uh, you know, um, studying strange species studying uh the evidence so we're going to talk about the scientific endeavors of cryptozoology where they are headed and uh what we can do to further that in the first part of the episode we will be joined by the author vicky joy anderson her website is vickyjoyanderson.com uh you can stop by and check her out there her new book is actively available not only from her website, but at lamarzuli.net. They only come out at night, uh, exposing the dark weapon of sleep paralysis. We will be getting into that topic in the first part of our episode tonight. That book is also available, of course, at curiousrealm.com forward slash store. All you got to do is hop on over there, click the link, and look at that. It'll take you right to L.A. Marzuli's site. So, um... We'll get into that so much more here in just a second. Of course, 
as we always do in the first part of the episode, let's check out the news of the week this week brought to you by our Facebook group. Uh, stop on by, join the Facebook group. That is where we post tons of articles, have conversations. Oh, wow. Facebook is not on the refreshness right now. Um, oh, this was really wild. Thank you, Will Liam, for posting this. Uh, there was a huge sphere that landed on a beach in Japan, and they are investigating it right now, trying to figure out what that is. That was some really wild news of the weirdness today that came out. Um, there is a new uh, episode of Oak Island coming out, uh, as well as um, this article out of fizz.org. Japanese startup unveils balloon flight space viewing tours. Uh, I don't know if you could pay me to be in an, in a balloon ride right now. Um, with everything going on. Uh, in, in addition to that, um, we have some interesting news out of debrief. Curious oblong object detected on radar was closely tracked by NASA officials say. And out of UK news, yahoo.com, a hidden planet at the edge of our solar system could be five times the size of Earth. That is just some of the news that is fit to print that we share on our Facebook feed every week. Stop on by, join the conversation, post news articles, let people know what is happening in the world around you. Um, our guest in this first segment, everybody, is Vicki Joy Anderson. She is the author of They Come Out at Night. Um, we will be talking with her about the phenomena of sleep paralysis, uh, what some of the possibilities of origins of sweet p sleep paralysis are, um, how people come down with this affliction. Uh, welcome, Vicki. How are you doing this evening? Hey, Chris, I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks so much for having me on. I, I have been looking forward to it as well. I am a, as I told you in our pre-conversation, a sufferer of sleep paralysis. Mine, mine started probably, geez, I guess I moved to Maine in 2015, something like that. So yeah, it was, it was almost a good, 10 years ago. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting. The, the numerous experiences I've had with it. Um, if you can share with our audience, how you came into this world of research, Vicki. Sure. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to say, I am so excited that we are finally to a point in time where we can actually talk just so, you know, out up front about this. I mean, this was the kind of thing that nobody talked about before and everyone sort of silently suffered from this thinking that they were the only one for fear of, well, if I tell anybody about this, they're going to think I'm schizophrenic. They're going to think I'm mentally ill. They're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I'm possessed, you know, and, you know, with the, uh, the coming out of the exorcism and like what the, the seventies or eighties and people were like, I'm yeah. not going to put myself into yeah. a position where priests are going to start coming over to my house and trying to get God knows what to come crawling out of me. So it's really been kind of a silent, uh, journey for most people. And, uh, really the people that I had in mind when I wrote the book, because it mirrors my own journey is, uh, people that have had this plaguing them their entire lives 
pretty much since early childhood. It was nothing that they did on their own to initiate it, because obviously we know there's a lot of people out there that are actually wanting and highly desirous of tapping into this ability to get into these sleep paralysis modes because they, they want the auto body experiences. They want the astral projection. But when, when I'm, what I'm addressing in my book is these people that were like, Hey, I don't remember signing up for this. <laughs> so that was the case with me. And that's really what led into the research. I never anticipated to, to have any of this research really go public or my own story go public. You know, I'm a pretty private person. And, you know, you start sounding like a kook when you talk about this too much. Uh, but when I finally figured out what it was after about 30 years of, of suffering from it, I didn't find out in my 30s till what it was. I'd never heard the phrase sleep paralysis probably till I was 33, 35, something yeah. like that. And I was shocked to hear another person verbatim telling a story describing this experience. Uh, I had no idea anyone else suffered from this. And it was a really bittersweet moment. There was part of me that was like, oh my goodness, I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. And there's other people out there that I can talk to. But at the same time, it it came into such sharp focus that this was a spiritual thing and not just bad dreams, mm. not just not just some figment of my imagination. And so at the same time uh, of experiencing relief, I actually experienced deeper levels of sort of horror over the situation because it's like this is something uh, much more serious than just me eating a, you know, a, a bad slice of pizza before I go to bed because yeah. the other people that are talking about it, it's the same exact story. So we're not eating. We're not all eating the same piece of pizza. So what is going on here? And uh, I probably researched for about 12 years. Uh, just gathering information and um, from every source. And this is what I was really trying to do, Chris. There, There's stuff out there online. There's not a lot of books on sleep paralysis. There's a few, but a lot of them are fictionalized and a lot of them gravitate just towards telling the campfire stories and, and like the, the tales and the, you know, the, the creepy, scary ones and the incubus rapes. And like everyone wants to hear about that. But I really wanted to kind of bring everybody to the table. Let's look at this from a scientific standpoint. Let's look at it medically. Let's look at it physiologically. Let's look at it philosophically. Let's look at it through the yeah. difference, uh, through the lenses of, of all the world religions, not just, not just one. And sure. so I really wanted to, everyone to come to the table because I think that there's been a lot of, ownership on sleep paralysis like science says it's, mm. it's ours this belongs to us and you know catholicism says this belongs to us and if you say this is purely some sort of uh, mental illness or it's purely something physiological and neurological going on in the mind or if this is every single time it happens it's a demon possessing you we're never going to get to the bottom of what this really is if we're just tug of warring yeah. over one minuscule little compartment that this has to perfectly fit into. We especially uh, have to be careful to make sure not to, like you're saying, uh, really exclude people who say that they experience this. Um, it no. was not easy for I, I'm and it, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, that. That the Catholic Church, because when I brought it up to uh, um, most of my audience knows, you do not know. 
Um, but my first year in college, I was a Catholic seminarian. Oh, uh, wow. Continued on in the church, spent many years as assistant youth minister and teaching Sunday schools, CCE, being very involved. Um, but when I brought my and, and granted, the the second or third time that I experienced sleep paralysis um, was the first time that I experienced seeing what most people would consider a, quote, shadow person. Yes. Um, in my room with me. Yes. Uh, and experienced it like I got up in the middle of the night and went and used the restroom and saw it. Yes. Um, and thought I just imagined it. Yes. Yes. Um, but when I brought the experience of that being while in a state of sleep paralysis grabbing me. Mm hmm. Uh, to my spiritual director, uh, about, uh, how, let's have a conversation about this. Uh, he was <laughs> a more than befuddled. Um, uh -huh. B was, had no bones about saying, like, I'm sorry, Chris, the church has no teaching on this. Yeah. Nobody does. Um, which, you know, it became very rapidly for me, Vicky, a, a crisis, I wouldn't say a crisis in faith, but a crisis in conscious of involvement. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's such a strange kind of dichotomy going on when you're experiencing it mm. because in, in, it's kind of like the proverbial train wreck. It's so terrible, but you can't keep your eyes off of it sort of a thing where yeah. in one sense, you don't want it to happen again. It is so terrifying. And you can't explain it and you can't really talk to people about it and you can't figure out why is it targeting me and is there something I'm doing or, you know, but yep. then the, at the same time, there's this curiosity, like, why is it targeting me and no one else? Is there something yeah. special about me? And that's where a lot of people get yanked all the way down the rabbit hole of a lot of the new age stuff, because it's like, sure. I'm, you're special, you have a gift. And they so they research that. And the fact of the matter is a lot of people with sleep paralysis, um, they have things in common. A lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people with sleep paralysis, some of the things that they have in common is uh, a lot of childhood trauma. Mm. And trauma opens up certain creative avenues in people because there's in some t in some cases, there's disassociation and creativity and escapism. It, it creates uh, vast sure. amounts of empathy. A lot of times people who've come out of trauma, they're very empathetic people. They're yeah. also very artistic and creative. So they're they're the types of people that are paying attention to their dreams. And what's very interesting, what's sort of almost magnetic about this sleep paralysis experience is and it, the scientists even talk about this they say the reason why people with sleep paralysis have it so often and the reason why many of them can predict or they get a sort of sixth sense on the days that they're going to have it it's like you well that's a phenomenon where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're thinking about it so much that you're actually drawing the experience and what's What's fascinating to me, I was on another podcast months ago, 
And I was talking to the hosts were kind of paranormal researchers and they did like where they would go to graveyards and, and um, summon things and, and, and whatever. Correct. So they, they came home once and something was attached to them and they started experiencing all sorts of paranormal activity. So they did what, all of us would instinctively do. They started researching the history of their house and if any, you know, one had died in the house and they started um, summoning it and asking its name and then researching, you know, the name all the way back Man. to the roots. And, you know, so, but what they realized as the more they researched it, the more they were curious, the more they focused on this, the more intense and terrifying and frequent the paranormal experiences became. And so they very brilliantly latched upon this idea. Let's ignore it. You know, when you got like a, a spoiled child who's desperately trying to get your attention yeah. and, and you know, there's Freddy a point Kruger. where you, you, yeah, you just got to ignore it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, rev I revoke great. consent from this system. Great. Yes. And that is such a great example. <laughs> And, and so they decided to ignore this thing and it, it wasn't immediate. But once this thing realized it wasn't going to get attention, uh, once it wasn't going to, you know, get its little narcissistic tank filled because these people were just not acknowledging it anymore, it did eventually go away. And so this is not to say to people that are experiencing this, it's your fault. You did something wrong. You brought it on because that's, I think, a huge problem across the board that we have with the Catholic and evangelical Christian churches when it comes to sleep yeah. paralysis. The church should have the most knowledge on this because there are spiritual aspects to it many times. And so they're the ones that should really have the answers. But most of the time when you go to a priest or a pastor and you start talking about this kind of stuff – you will start going down the path of what did you do wrong? Did you play with a Ouija board? Did you dabble in the occult when you were a kid? Are, are you looking at pornography? Are you cheating on your wife? They're, they're looking for this open door, which that, well, that's, well, that's fine. Well, sure. Which door did you leave open? Right. But that's the problem, Chris. It's like yeah. it, it's you deserve this because you did something wrong or you invited it you it's the same as now, the as, as the rapist you wanted it well and now granted granted um and and we we were discussing this in my in my in our pre-show conversation i think it's a cogent point to bring it up now is when 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 my sleep paralysis started was when i began my dream work uh, uh -huh. I regularly talk about the and, you know, I got I got no problems. I, I meditate, you know, things like that. Not as much as I used to. Um, but I, it was interesting to me that I, I was literally working on hitting that, I guess, the amygdala wall, you know, that part mm -hmm. of your amygdala where um the the snake like brain takes over and yes. fear happens and you get it it's fight flight or freeze yes. people forget the third f there the freeze yes. is always an option and that's yes. that's kind of what's happening in the in some people with the sleep paralysis is that there's in a mid drift between uh wakefulness and sleep you have had a moment of fight or flight that has caused you to freeze um, 
And for me, it was the fact of uh, I had heard so many times studying about astral travel, astral projection, things like that, that it's that it's that moment where you you're going to sleep and you feel like you're falling. Yes. And if you can get past that jolt awake, if you can recognize that Mm -hmm. and be conscious enough to say, okay, this is happening. It's all right. Now, granted, I do not. I am not condoning this for anybody. I'm just telling you what what the theory of operation here is. And if you can if you can get past that, that's supposed to be the point where you can get to astral travel, all kinds of things, Akashic records, what have you. Um, And and sure, I am an open minded spiritual individual. Um, Yeah. But it's also the fact of, like you said, almost self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um. I, I put myself in the situation of a being hyper aware to that state. Yes. That moment. And yeah. uh, which, hey, it may have, it may have come and gone and passed in the past and never ended up a moment of sleep paralysis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I even find that, Chris, in the church, mm. when when I talk to people about this, uh, you know, as someone who would be, let's say, a self-professing Christian, when I talk about this, there's so much. I don't really want to use the word ignorance because it's not as aggressive of a word as I as I mean, but there's a lot of there's a lot of lack of knowledge. Yes. When it comes to spiritual warfare, even though the church is the ones that kind of hold the mantle for that, and, you know, they talk about Ephesians 6 and that all the archons and the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and the high places that are waging war with mankind. And, you know, that, that's kind of like the cosmic war versus Ephesians six twelve, and put on yeah. your armor because yeah. we're fighting. So they, they have really cornered the market on spiritual warfare. But when it actually comes to confronting it or having to deal with it. Everyone is kind of playing hot potato all of a sudden. You know, the pastor's throwing the hot potato over to the assistant pastor and he's throwing it to the yeah. youth pastor. <laughs> you know, and what, what I find, uh, and this, this is in, in line with what we're talking about here is there's this idea that, you know, before you go to bed, pray against this and pray against that and say, okay, I pray in the name of Jesus that I won't have bad dreams and that I won't have sleep paralysis and that I won't see the shadow man and that I won't have an incubus. And it, it gets to this point mm. where, um, to, to sort of go into the, to the realms of Robert Monroe and his, his loose theory from the journeys trilogy. At what point are you doing spiritual warfare or are you actually hyping your mind up? hyping your mind up because you're focusing more on all of the potential things that might happen to you. You're going to sleep in a state of unrest. Your mind is not at peace. And so I would think that spiritual warfare would, would have to do with, um, defusing that situation. And, you know, what, what I tell people, and I don't really know that it goes over real big, but, you know, in scripture, if you're going to, if you're going to take the, the traditional biblical view of it, uh, King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, or at least half of them or more, mm-hmm. he, he, of, of all the references in scripture to the word meditation, I think it's, it depends on the translation, but I think if you go to the King James, it, there's 33 references to meditation in the whole Bible, and 30 of them are in the Psalms. And so it's usually David talking about this. And the way he defined meditation was, 
um, meditating on the works of the Lord, meditating yeah. on his goodness, meditating on his deeds, meditating on his law. Uh, and so it was a cognitive, wide awake, very cerebral activity. And so what I tell Christians with the spiritual warfare stuff is, if you're sitting there an hour before you go to bed, praying over every single nefarious quantum technological spiritual astral thing yeah. that might attack you that night technically according to the biblical definition you're meditating on those evil things you're giving it uh attention you are you're, you're manifesting it yeah you are meditating on it and so if you want the things to stay away you got to meditate on this stuff that isn't attractive to them yeah. and um, because they are pretty narcissistic individuals. If you're sitting there talking about them and you're on the phone and you're, you're telling all your friends about all your scary sleep paralysis stories and how you got yeah. flung out of your bed and you know, you're kind of, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's the idea of, you know, you, you are the friends you attract, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, you want to, you want to get your life right. Start hanging around the right people. Right, right. Yeah, you know? absolutely. and and you'll know when they're the right people. You don't you don't need any grandiose sign from the heavens to happen. You'll know. Uh, you know who the jack hats are, people, and you know when you meet them. You know, like you don't you don't need an incredible BS meter for that to be a mantra of life. Um, yeah. I mean, truly, truly. But it, but that is one of the topics that we talk about regularly on this show, Vicky, is the idea of um, and we just had the conversation not too long ago with with an actual witch. Mm. Um, the the idea that it's interesting to me as as somebody who spent time in the seminary studying the world of proselytization, yeah. um, moving people with words. Yes. Um, the exact similarities between some of the books in my esoteric library from the yes. 1910s talking yes. uh, when the movement of manifestation and yes. things like that first started. Um, yeah. And the words of people like Joel Osteen. Yeah. And, yeah. and the utter similarity between yes. them. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's it's really interesting to have seen that because growing up, that was that was not the the church I knew. Right. Um, necessarily. There were some great priests that I knew who gave great homilies, um, love, peace, unity, all kinds of things. But there there wasn't the concept of moving your life forward through through blessing yeah. the way that there is now. Yeah. Yep. There certainly is a favoritism for cherry picking the verses in scripture that talk about love and forgiveness and grace and an absolute willful ignorance of some of the more dire warnings or, yeah. or whatnot. But I know too, with my research, what, what sort of my pet peeve is how needlessly boring evangelical Christianity has mm. made the scriptures like this, the, the Bible, if you actually explore the context, the culture, the history, the language and the geography, those are the five yep. kind of like pillars you have to have under yes. the foundation of your research. And most Americans, we, we read Paul, we read the new Testament and we kind of think he's this Baptist pe preacher from, from down the road. Like we don't understand his culture. And mm. if we actually understood 
what those writers in their context and culture and, and, and geography and history and language were actually saying. The Bible is actually a ridiculously supernatural tome. And, uh, and that made me sure. think of it when you said that, you know, those es- these esoteric books that we can read and, you know, occult books and grimoires and uh, even Lovecraft and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and if you study Kabbalah, you know, the, the Bible yeah. isn't preaching the same mysticism, but this is what I always ask Christians because I'm just curious if they can answer. And I'm not antagonist to Christianity. I was raised that way. Um, but when you realize how much syncretism has happened over the thousands of years and how much uh, Mithraism and Babylonian sun worship cults and things have been oh, sure. added the traditions and the interpretations. And so what's interesting to me, like I always say to um, Christians, you know, when like they talk about black magic and the occult and divination and, you know, new age and all this stuff. It's easy to point the finger, but I'll say like, okay, then explain to me, you know, why was the black magic (laughs) that Moses did different? Because I just want to know if they have an answer, you know, and it is different. It is different. I can tell you what's different, but most Christians can't tell you. How about the really interesting breastplate that the high priests had to wear that gave them direct communication with God because of the jewels on it? Yes. Or the stone that Jacob led, put his head upon in the city of Luz, which he renamed Bethel, house of God. Those stones were were liminal spaces that um, they used to use to communicate like they called Jupiter stones, like they communicated Mm. with Jupiter. And he went to Luz and Luz, if you look it up online, it says it means an almond tree. But if you if you dig a little bit deeper, Luz was the name of the the coccyx bone, which we know from Kundalini awakenings and various third eye awakenings and new age and chakras and yoga and all this, that the, the coccyx was believed in ancient times to be the only indestructible part of the body. So it was sort of the, the key piece of DNA that God needed to resurrect us on, on the last day. Right. So, but what this really was is these are people, they named their city after the coccyx because they were doing these third eye awakenings and speaking with the spirit realm, which well, is probably why Jacob went there. He wanted an encounter and, and he he encountered Yahweh. I, I have brought up more than one time on this show, Vicky, the idea of if you want a reason why the yeah, historically, because once again, when you look at the Bible, especially whenever you look at the world of ancient uh, Israel, mm-hmm. um, you've got to look at the politics. You've got to look yes. at the the culture in which they lived. Yeah. All of these things, because the culture was the law and the law was from God. Yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah. and and for a 12 year old to be listened to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the high priest probably wasn't because they thought he was the Messiah. Right. Um, but probably more the case that he was a very advanced Kabbalistic student. It's, uh, well, yeah. Who gave him uh, the ability not how did he not only know the secret stuff, yeah. but enough knowledge where he could argue yeah. with the defects of their arguments? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to where they were listening. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, even, even when you go through and start really reading the big red words, it, it rings so much with 
Kabbalistic tradition and the idea of uh, because the universe was spoken into being and we were breathed into by that breath, we can create in that way. Um, we, we can change the world around us, that we can have direct communication with the divine and we do not need the institution of come by a dove and have us burn it for sacrifice for you. Mm. Um, and that was dangerous to the status quo, highly. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to me that, I mean, obviously, Jesus's message was not highly received. They, they sure. slaughtered, you know, yeah. so he was going against that, that addition and the misinterpretations and the esoteric takes on, 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 the, on the Torah that had been distorted over the course of the last 6,000 years, probably, in, you know, through the Babylonian diaspora mm. and, all, all of the influence of the Sumerian and Akkadian and Babylonian uh, schools of, of mysticism. And I mean, going all the way back even before that, though, to the antediluvian times, the blood drinking cults of mm. Kish goes back to Cain. And I mean, a lot of that yeah, stuff. Molech. Yep. Molech, Baal, Queen of Heaven. Yeah. And um, it, it doesn't take uh, a secret decoder ring to see the fingerprints of Baal and Molech and the queen of heaven in our culture today. Well, and it's, it, it also doesn't, doesn't take a secret decoder ring to see why, why you work with LA Marzuli on mm. stuff. Uh, <laughs> because yeah, uh, your, your grasp of this is fantastic. And let's, let's start kind of cracking the nut real quick about right. how how this because we've we've gotten very I wouldn't necessarily say esoteric um with what we're talking about but we've gone down the road of esoteric and gone down the road of Kabbalah and gone down the road of all these things how do they relate because once again like just to loop it back to where we got off there yeah. Um, we were, we were discussing the, the unfortunate way in which many of the Christian churches do not have a teaching right. of sleep paralysis when they should be the first ones yes. to yeah. understand it. So I, I have a theory, Chris, and Please. nothing that, nothing that I say should be chiseled in stone and, no. you know, brought to the Smithsonian. Like we're, we're musing. We're all in this together having, you know, trying to figure it out. But my, my theory, is that the seminaries that our, our pastors go to, they teach a very specific interpretation of Genesis 6. The sons of God came in and mated with the daughters of, of men. And they say that that was the line of Seth, the, the, the bloodline of Seth, you know, the good son, the obedient son, intermarrying with the horrible, you know, occultic line of Cain, the, the first murderer, the bad guy, right? And so, um, but what, what, what that explanation doesn't account for is how they then gave birth to demigods. How how yeah. did these women then give birth to giants, which, depending upon the research or how far you go back, you know, the Internet likes to say, oh, the giants were six feet tall because everyone was really short back then and six feet was considered tall. But um, if you go into like Quayle's research, like Steve Quayle, and there are people that believe that those giants might have been 45 feet tall in its first iteration. And all you have to do is watch uh, – you know, a Godzilla movie or King of Monsters and watch Hollywood's rendition of, of the demigods of the watchers. And they certainly thought they were huge. But anyway, I digress. 
The church does not fundamentally understand that Genesis 6 is the linchpin for understanding the whole Bible. This concept that, um, and it ties into the first book of Enoch too. There's three books of Enoch. Uh, book two and three are Gnostic. Book one is um, more widely accepted by the church, not as canon, but they're they're willing to look into it because there's references yeah. to Enoch and Jasher in in the scriptures, and so they're willing to look at it as a. But even like Josephus, that's not mentioned in scripture, and it's not canon. But a lot yeah. of us look to Josephus, and well, and, sure, he was he was a major Hebrew historian at the time, yeah. and yeah. and you know it's really interesting because when you start getting into, I, I myself am a, a New American user. Um, I just I prefer the translation than something translated from Latin. But yeah, yes. Um, to each his own. The the yep. same truth is within. Uh, yes. <laughs> and yep. and whenever you start looking at it, it's it's really interesting to see the exclusion later. Because sure, mm -hmm. like when mm -hmm. when the the whole the whole kerfuffle of the editing of the Bible to begin with, and the first mm -hmm. apocrypha. The yeah. first things that were removed to really solidify Christianity and help fight against Arianism. Yeah. Um, that was, that was the first editing of the Bible where they were like, okay, we can't have all this willy nilly Jesus like doing things with sticks and bringing clay pigeons to life. We got to figure out what Jesus right. was and we got to stick to it. Yeah, um, absolutely. and that's what that was. But then whenever the, the Lutherian version happened. There yeah. was even more pulled out. Things like Bell yes. and the Dragon, Enoch, yes. stuff yes. like that. And a, yep. a lot of people don't realize that, that that was pulled out later, mm -hmm. um, even later than the Catholic editing. Because like, hey, that's in my Bible. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And, you know, one thing, and this can get Christians upset, but just hear me out. Because, I mean, it's Absolutely. just the inspired scriptures were the original manuscripts, most of which have been lost. And yeah. so, you know, today's English version, the message Bible, that's great. This, these are great. Put them on your bookshelf and, and it helps you understand. But that's not the inspired with the, word of God. It's a translation. Take of the it with a grain of salt. Same so, way, same way that you would take reading Beowulf because um, that was not. That was not that was written through a translation through a, a monk listening to a story and writing it down in a language that everybody understood. So yeah, who knows what he did in the translation? There's two or three passages in Scripture that say that a curse will fall upon people who add to or take away from the Scriptures. And to me, that's an indication mm. that that's something that has happened. And this is the way I look at it. And again, this is just my opinion, but sure. um, I look at the Bible, our modern translations, you know, even if it was a hundred percent accurate, because we've lost touch with the original language, the history, the context, and because we don't know how to read it with those five things in mind, even if an angel from on high handed us down the original manuscripts, we would still, I think, misinterpret at this point. Yeah. But the way that I look at it is it's like a treasure map. If, if I found a treasure map and I was told this is 100% authentic and if you can follow this map, you're going to find a billion dollars worth of gold, you know. But the the map had been weathered through time. And so there were holes in it and there were pieces of it missing. 
and there were parts of it blotted out and um, weathered and the ink had fallen off of it. Hmm. I'm not going to throw that map away and say that it's worthless. I'm not going to I'm not going to miss out on the fact of potentially finding a five billion dollar treasure because there has been some tampering with an aging and weathering of that map. The yeah. map is still valuable and it still has enough information uh, to find the treasure. And so I think that sometimes we go too far when it's like, oh, it's just a storybook and it's just a fable. Like, no, it still has the same bits of of supernatural power emanating from it as the other books. But obviously it has been tampered with. And there's a reason it's been tampered with because it is the $5 billion treasure map. And there's people out there that don't want us finding that treasure. So they have, sure. it, they've made it more complicated, but, but again, uh, the, the scriptures have been so, um, I, I'm so glad that I live in the time and the era that I do like, Every day, the disclosure that's going on and even the uh, articles on the Facebook page that you showed before the Mm. show started, like what an exciting time to be alive. But then simultaneously, you know, as someone who was raised in the church, I can say what a disturbing time to be alive, saddest time to be alive, because (laughs) now we we actually have the the prophetic uh, explanations and, and ciphers for a lot of what we're seeing and and yet the church has just reduced everything kind of to this little country club where you show up and uh, i mean i i'm not throwing every single church into into one basket but no. i when i research the bible and i and i cross reference and i go and you know i'm reading other books and i just don't know why the church has made the bible like the most boring book on the planet they're not reading it right <laughs> it's the guidebook to the supernatural that's what la calls it and yeah. i I side with him there. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. And and uh, once again, to to loop this back around to sleep paralysis and yep. the, the understanding of the root of what some of these may be, um, yeah. Yeah. because sure, there's there's a great number of them that might not be of any supernatural nature, per se. Um, but the ones that are. We, yes. we really do have to be willing to explore. And it's it's interesting yep. um, that even in the medical journals, even in the medical articles about it, um, it goes into the supernatural stuff. It goes into um, the history of it and old hag and things like yes. that, yep. um, which have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. Uh, yes. In numerous cultures. So. Um, this is, this is not a new affliction once again, and previously was one, uh, that was considered a spiritual affliction. Yep, absolutely. There, there's a little mention of it in, uh, I think a clear explanation, uh, or description of sleep paralysis in Job, I think chapter mm. four, Eliphaz, his, his buddy. Um, but yes, you're correct. These, these shadow people, these old hags, the, the succubus, this goes all the way back into the uh, ancient Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian tablets. They are part of the Lamashtu family of demons, and there's many names for them. It's the Lilia, the Lamia, the Lamashtu. This is where the, the Judaic Lilith comes in, the screech owl in 
in the book of Isaiah, and they were very vampiric in nature. The, the modern American idea of a vampire is really a fictionalized, romanticized, scrubbed up version of these Lamashtu uh, entities. And I, I go into great detail about that in chapter four of my book. It's called uh, Astral Vamp- Threshold Covenants and Astral Vampires. And so it goes into the history of that. And uh, but lest anyone think I do, I do. Before I get into any of the spiritual stuff, I lay the foundation that there are physiological aspects to this. There is such thing as sleep paralysis that doesn't come accompanied with anything spiritual. There are those times where we're drifting off to sleep or waking up and we can't move and we kind of know we're falling asleep and there's nothing creepy about it at all. And uh, sleep paralysis can be brought on by extreme stress. It can Mm. be brought by trauma. It can. So it. I am not of the ilk that every single time a person has sleep paralysis, there's a demon in their bedroom trying to drag them yeah. to hell. I'm yeah. not seeing that. And, and, and that's exactly why I brought that up, because I could yeah. tell just by what you were saying and by what I've read of your work, um, yeah. that is not the case. Right. Right. Absolutely. I And I think that there are people that have a different experience. And this is what's great about this, Chris. And there's so many tentacles to sleep paralysis. If people think that, the only conversation you can have about sleep paralysis has to be about shadow people and women in rocking chairs in the corner of the room when you wake up. The, all this esoteric stuff that we're talking about, it is directly related. Um, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about the church's inability to properly understand what's going on in Genesis 6. And it ties back to Enoch when 200 of the watchers, this high-ranking angelic figure, 200 of the watchers came down Mount Hermon, and they weren't just hiking. It wasn't a hiking expedition. This was a dimensional portal, which many mountains are, which is why there's so many prominent mountains in Scripture, Mount Zion, Mount Sinai. I mean, the the in, in ancient times, people connected with the spirit realm on the top of mountains. And so... These 200 watcher angels came down through a portal down Mount Hermon. They intermarried with the women. They gave birth to the demigods. And what happened was it resulted in the great flood. And so the flood, the flood came and destroyed them all. But so all of the demigods, because they were half human, perished in the flood. But because they're half angel, their spirits remained alive. And this is where we get all the disembodied spirit lore and the ghost lore and the demon lore. Um, if you, if you want the theological, uh, understanding of a demon, or uh, if you want to know the Jewish understanding of a demon, if you want to know the Dead Sea Scroll interpretation of a demon, it's the disembodied souls of these half watcher, half human demigods. Yeah. And so, what I think a big part of sleep paralysis is and why the church specifically doesn't understand it is the spirit realm. The reason they came down, part of what they did when they came down is they shared the mysteries of heaven with man. And Enoch talks about how they were taught how to uh, forge weapons for war. They were taught about herbs and drugs and makeup for for seduction. And so mankind became corrupted by all of these mysteries of heaven that was not supposed to be shared with the men and women of earth. And so they got punished for it. And so how do they continue their mission of sharing this secret knowledge with mankind? Because they know if they come down here overtly, 
like they used to, they're going to get wiped out. They're going to get punished. They're going to get locked up in the abyss. So what I really think that sleep paralysis plays into is it is the doorway. It's it's the portal to the out-of-body astral experiences. It gets us up into the astral realm. So now you see how the guilt of this sin is now transferred to mankind. The angels were punished for leaving their first estate. They left the spiritual realm and they came down to the earthly realm. They taught us forbidden knowledge. They know they can't come down here anymore. So now they're getting us to leave our first estate and come up there and get the knowledge from them on their turf. And now they're not culpable. Now they're not culpable. Yeah, they're- yeah, because now it's a now it's a point of your own volition. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So wow. the, the church is never going to understand sleep paralysis, uh, this the spiritual demonic aspects of it. They're not going to understand the astral projection and all of the esoteric theosophical knowledge coming from the astral realm if they do not know what Genesis 6 means. Interesting. And, uh, you know, um, once again, I think it comes down to a point of somewhat somewhat having lost way um i uh, once again when i've when i've had when i had the discussion with my spiritual director mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, like i said before i have i have in no way shape or form lost my faith right my my faith in my god as i know my god has never been shaken yes um however my faith in institution yes was shaken immediately yes um, don't get me wrong. My son yep. in the room next to us is fully baptized. Everything else. Yep. He wants to be curious, ask questions. I, I talk with him about everything. So, um, he wants to go to church at some point. I'll take him. I have no issue. Uh, right. however, it was one of those. I, I cannot sit here and make the extreme leap of logic mm-hmm. that you're asking me to make. I, I have come in and, you you ask me to accept my faith upon spectral evidence, but when presented evidence of the spectral, yes, have no faith in it. Yes. Um, and once again, that's a leap of logic that I cannot make. I can't accept somebody, even even people who believe in heaven or hell and don't believe in ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's like it. It it boggles my mind because the leap of logic for that. Yes. I I have the same argument so frequently, Chris, because the the supernatural has sort of been nudged out of the church. Yeah. We, you know, we can talk about the water into wine and, you know, some cute animals going into a boat. Like we can talk about some of the, the fun, cute, you know, heartwarming miracles. But what what I don't understand is how we can read the entire like if you if you actually look at the gospel of the kingdom which is what mm. jesus was preaching he wasn't preaching a gospel of salvation now salvation no. was part of it he was sure. you know going back to the Joel Osteen, um he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom which is basically there's a cosmic war going on in the heavenly realms and yep. you guys cannon fodder in the middle of it. I've come down here to warn you numbskulls yeah. that you got to pick a side. It was so, spiritual fight club. 
Exactly. Oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> Straight so, up. Like, so, right. you choose your level of involvement, but here's what it is. Exactly, right? I love that. And so what, what blows my mind is that uh, we as Christians uh, can say, the Bible's the infallible word of God. I take it literally. Every word of it's true. People are being raised from the dead. Moses is turning, you know, staffs of wood into serpents. Uh, we can believe all of this stuff. But then when it comes to, hey, hey, you know, this spiritual warfare that we've been reading about our whole life and learned about in Sunday school, like like the spiritual warfare that Daniel encountered when he was thrown into a lion's den and, you know, the spiritual warfare that Paul encountered when he talked about all of his shipwrecks and his lashings and his the snakes, bite, vipers biting him and yeah. all this stuff. But But then when we say, hey, here's one of the ways that spiritual warfare manifests in the 21st century. These demonic entities can occasionally show up while we're asleep and scare us. Nope. Nope. Too wild. Too crazy. <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, um, <clears throat> that's what gets me is that once again, I'm Catholic by, I, I guess, uh, by, by upgrade, by upbringing, by, spiritual path everything else uh that is that is christianity wise and with my god the the god that i identify with i am not a church goer i don't practice every week anything like that um a lot of people would call me lapsed fine don't really care uh, <laughs> however um what has not lapsed is my vigilance yes for such things and my my vis my vigilance um, for vibration of presence mm. and, and being able to recognize when something is amiss. Right. Spiritually right. around me, whether it's somebody that needs help or just somewhere that I, I don't need to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Right now. Yep. Well, it, it's interesting when, you know, when Jesus was alive during his ministry, the people that he really hassled were the, he he was he was against the institution. It, yeah. it was the, it was the hierarchy, and and even if you go all the way back to um, Isaiah fifty three, before you know thousands of years before Jesus was even manifested in the body and came came to earth, it said the government will be upon his shoulders. And from the day he was born, there were kings that wanted him dead and they were sending out people and all yeah. of all the children, of all the firstborn sons under two years old that were killed. And yeah, so slaughter of this, the innocents. And right. So th this whole idea that um, what Christ was doing turned into an institution, into a mm. politic, into a government, yeah. uh, and and this is the verse that a lot of Christians throw out there. It's it's in the book of Hebrews. Do not forsake the gathering together. Now, there's a couple things that you miss if you quote that verse out of context, which most people do. First of all, it's saying uh, that in the end times, when when it's it's all hitting the fan, that's when he's saying to not forsake the gathering. You know, don't don't be so afraid that you don't have your little mark that you're not even gathering with like don't isolate yourself because mm. isolation brings destruction but another thing there is 
It doesn't say don't forsake going to church. It says don't forsake the gathering together. And so the the ecclesia, the Greek word there that people translate as church, it doesn't mean church. It means assembly. Yeah. So if if I go to Fenway Park and I watch a baseball game with a bunch of people who have never set foot in a church, it's an ecclesia. Yeah. It's not a church. It's a gathering. It's hundreds yeah. of people gathered together that have one thing in common yeah, that, they, they're, they're, that, that they're worshiping. And so it, it doesn't – So. Or participating in. Exactly. So I look at it like um, what you and I are doing right now. We've gathered together. We're discussing. Let's get to the bottom of some of this spiritual stuff. Let's let's bring the Bible into it. Let's bring philosophy. Let's talk about this. What what was Jesus's part in this? What was he talking about? There's a whole bunch of listeners that are joining us. We're gathering together. We haven't forsaken it. Well, and, and that's just it. The The red words in and of themselves simplified it even more with wherever two or more are gathered. Yes. Um, yep. Like yep. you didn't even you didn't even have to get like really complex and have like, oh, whoa, whoa, what's a group? Yeah. Is it more than a couple? Right. Like absolutely le- less than a peck. Um, (laughs) what's a peck Um, yeah Uh, so it it really is once again that idea of gathering of minds gathering of hearts gathering of people for a like purpose period Um, and and I think that really does get back to a a point that we talk about a lot on this show and that is the, the differentiation between the concept of agape love and and romantic love Yes, uh, yeah. especially here in the West, we have really um, intertwined the concept of love and lost the concept of agape. Um, yeah, the the concept of loving everybody equally until until otherwise yeah. informed or moved otherwise. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's strange to me to hear people. And and when you stop and think about it, it's a really unbalanced way to live. When you hear people saying, like, I hate that person, and they have never met them. You might hate an action. You might hate something they stand for, whatever. But how can you, like, actively hate somebody that you have never shared company with and never been in the same room with? That, to me, is a mentality that I would like to not share. Yeah. Um, We we are certainly becoming an emotions-driven uh, culture, which is, I think, frightening. Uh, I think we still have to have common sense. I think we still have to have logic and reason, reasoning abilities. Um, Do you think and- the uptick in sleep paralysis cases are not only because, you know, conversations like this happen, people are more aware of it, um, but also because of those social ills, social stresses? Things like that. So, I mean, hey, we, we got even we got even kids right now going through yeah. eating disorders because of friggin' TikTok, man. Well, you I, know, I, I, like, I was just going to say disturbing. I was just going to say there there are so many things being introduced um, to the kids through social media mm. that really are occultic in occultic practices. And they're, you know, just thinking it's fun and all of these little, what do they call them? Like all these challenges. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you guys like, don't, don't be doing good. Anytime you see these challenges, um, even if they seem silly and innocent, anytime you have millions of people all participating in something, it is in essence, a ritual and rituals can garnish energy. 
And, and so we have to be careful with that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's aspects there of, sure. um, you know, going back to Robert Monroe with the louche and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really think that we have to um, be careful that we're not um, presenting these things in a way where it becomes titillating. And, you know, one of the things that I did in my book, it was one of the suggestions that L.A. had, and it made the book a thousand times better. I'm so grateful for his input, is because this stuff is so dark and there's a potential for people for their curiosity to then turn into being titillated or actually unwittingly open doors to be susceptible to this stuff. So at the the end of every chapter, I kind of have this like cleansing prayer for lack of a better word. And then these bullet points that I call warfare points, you know, to just really warn people that this stuff, you can open things up just by, reading this stuff and having an intrigue. And now I'm going to go online and watch hours and hours of sleep paralysis videos and hear everybody's stories. And then I'm going to almost have a little bit of a fantasy where it sounds really scary, but I wish I could feel that way, you know, and you asked for it, you got it. So it's a very, uh, you got to kind of enter into it soberly. Well, and you know, that is, that is a topic that we discuss regularly on this show, Vicki. Mm. Um, I myself have done my work in the world of paranormal investigation, things like that. I've been out to cemeteries with cameras, all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, the one thing I won't abide whenever I do that is uh, we, we can bring a medium all day long. Yeah. I'm not trying to have a conversation. Yeah, no way. Uh-uh. No, way. No, no, because we have no no filter by which to know yeah. uh, what is hijacking what what we believe, and that's a conversation that we have regularly. Whether it's um, our our Bigfoot sightings, our yeah. our you know ET abductions, yeah. is is it actually that, or is it another experience from another entity? That is using what we would be comfortable with. Right. And using our psyche to give us the experience that we're comfortable with to basically bypass absolutely our, our psychological consent. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love the way you worded that. And the, when you said psychological consent, that's you've got to give your consent. Yep. That's, that's I mean, that with or without baptism. Honestly, yep. folks, like you yep. could be unbaptized, doesn't matter. What matters is the fact of you have that indisputable grain in there that this other thing never had, never will have, and will always want. Yep. Yep. The The Threshold Covenant chapter it goes into this. When you said consent, you hit the nail right on the head. Because as I said, these shadow people, these succubus, these old hags, they go back to the... Mm. Lamashtu, these vampiric uh, night demons, the screech owl. And one part of that ancient lore that has carried all the way through into our modern vampire lore is this uh, idea of invitation over the threshold. Mm-hmm. They cannot attack you unless you're given invitation. But a lot of people, uh, I call this like the little red riding hood syndrome. Uh, people aren't going to let a wolf over their door, but they're going to let grandma They're going to let grandma in. So if the wolf comes dressed as grandma, bam, over the threshold. And so, yeah, I I love I never considered that a spiritual story until right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
So, uh, and another thing, this this really ties in too with this. This is a a downside to being emotions driven rather than you know we we got to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and we got to leave the mind part in there. What I tell people, and you just eloquently said the same thing, is we can't let our feelings or our emotions determine whether or not an entity that we're dealing with is good or bad or friendly or nefarious because it can come disguised as an experience that we are comfortable with. And so Absolutely. What, what I tell people is there's a lot of people that, you know, have these experiences. They astral project or they do their ayahuasca or whatever, and they're filled with the, the love and light and, you know, orgasmic experiences. But it says in scripture that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So we need something more to that litmus test than just it felt really good. Sure. And then subsequently in scripture, we have examples of people running into angels sent by God who, you know, were not nefarious. And almost every single one of them keeled over, fainted, wet their pants, freaked yep. out. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So we can encounter something benevolent and good and righteous and kind and be terrified. And we can uh, encounter something very evil and a trickster or, or a seductress. And it can, it can look absolutely beautiful. So we cannot judge, especially with all of the UFO abduction stories that we've all heard where it's, we've been told that these beings have the ability to, uh, put emotions in their head. People have said that, uh, that they would be hypnotized looking into these eyes and, and that yeah. they, they could read the mind or they could experience joy. They could experience an orgasm. They could experience terror. And that they talk about how their emotional, uh, uh, circuit board is kind of hijacked by these things. So yeah. to get out of an experience like this and base whether or not that entity is trustworthy simply and only on how it made you feel in that moment is excruciatingly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, not too long ago, we, we got into a very deep conversation about, uh, that occult worship. And, yeah. and, and the works of people like Anton LaVey, uh, the, yeah. the works of even, um, uh, you know, other, other high, high magic practicers. Yes. And even, even Aleister Crowley with Lamb. Yeah. Um, he, he gleaned a lot of information from Lamb, but never once did he say that he trusted. Yeah. Or yeah. would encourage anybody else to trust Lamb. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've had some great conversations, he and I, and he's been a great spiritual guide. But <laughs> would I trust him? Nah. Yeah. Um, and, Good. You know, and it's interesting to even hear it from that side that yeah. that even they're like, no, 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 I don't care what circle is salt or white, white circle you draw on the ground. It <laughs> right. doesn't mean that they ain't going to play by their rules. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, we we forget that regularly. The fact of we and, you know, even even when you're talking paranormal, even when you are talking extraterrestrial, um, the scientists that I love are the ones like Stephen Hawking, who who mm. did more than raise a flag. That man like shot flares in the air. 
Like, <laughs> yeah, you are a crazy person. Quit sending out our DNA into the universe. Yeah. Quit yes. sending maps of where we are located. Right. Um, yeah. The likelihood of them coming and being advanced and happy people are are very low. Yeah, absolutely. Um if and, and and that's just because we the problem is we tend to anthropomorphize yes and we tend to put things into this beautiful light that if if yeah. if we could travel amongst the stars we surely would be this united yeah. um would we be have we ever been that united yeah no let's, right let's start there let's yep. <laughs> Well, Let's and, start with the nature of humanity and have we ever been that united? Um, and then let's rethink that equation. Because once again, let's think about the nature of humanity when it comes to this, um, mm -hmm. when it comes to the rules that we play by and how we bend and break them. And do you think that they haven't been bending and breaking them for millennia? Yeah, absolutely. And we we know that they have. And you know, if you go all the way back to, okay, how did we get in this mess to begin with? Mm. It, it was a thirst for knowledge. It was the, the tree of knowledge. And then how do we get further, you know, encrusted into this mess? The watchers came down and gave us knowledge. And the book of Enoch, it doesn't just say that the watchers taught these things to men it said uh and the watchers taught these things to men and the men were seeking it the men wanted it we still want it that's why a lot of people do want to astral project they do want to uh speak to the dead they do want to do necromancy they do want they want their questions answered and yeah. i am starting to see a trend now our ai and our chat boxes are getting so sophisticated and, you know, there are videos out there now and there are um, chat applications now where I'm not so sure, Chris, that there isn't some sort of uh, medium communication going on in some of these things. You know, not all of them, but I've seen some videos where kids are having little chat talks, you know, um, yeah. and and it really seems more like a conversation than algorithms being pulled together nonsensically and like uh, a non-localized intelligence. Yeah. Or, or, or mm. the, the, the phone is kind of being used as the, the device, you know, like sure. instead of the eight ball or, or the Ouija board that it, yeah. it's now that is the medium that, that is the medium between us communicating with the spirit realm and so a lot of these things that are being pushed out to us as entertainment or as fun you know and their mm. games and their fun little apps a lot of it if it isn't now if it isn't yet the technology is rolling out uh for the purposes of more and more and more direct communication with these entities. Well, and uh, one of the concepts that we talk about regularly is the concept of the Ergregor. Um, and oddly enough, when I first found out about the Ergregor uh, was when I was researching Enochian magic and, okay. and reading about Enochian magic. I'll pop it up on screen right here, folks. Here's the definition. Um, Ergregor also spelled Ergregor without an E at the end, 
um, is an occult concept representing a non-physical entity that arises from the collective thoughts of a distinct group of people. Historically, the concept referred to angelic beings or watchers and the specific rituals and practices associated with them, namely within Anakian traditions. Mm. In more recent times, the concept has referred to a psychic manifestation or a thought form which occurs when any group shares a common motivation being made up of and influencing the thoughts of the group. Um, I am a big believer in the concept of the Ergregor and in the concept of a lot of what is happening in the world around us. We are fully manifesting as a society. Yeah. Uh, you could call it your own self-fulfilling prophecy if you want. This kind of feeds into the old, um, the old concept of the golem. Yes. Um, yep. but, but yep. this can be much more unintentional than yes. the golem. The that, golem is like an intended thing that you build to handle work for you that like, yep. Hey, I'm just sleepy and I'm going to take a nap. Go do this. Yep. Um, the ergregore is something that. Because of a mindset yeah. and activation within society, something takes on its own. Yeah. And it's really interesting, uh, especially whenever you're talking about the AI and yeah. things like that. You know, is it is it the fact of um, are we influencing that experiment? Yeah. It's yeah. the easiest way to put it. Are we yep. actively influencing that experience? And I mean, of course we are, because it's drawing its vocabulary off of our conversations. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yep. Our our thirst for esoteric knowledge is we are just as hungry for it as as Adam and Eve and as the the antediluvian people, and uh, we now have technological infrastructure to accommodate it, you know it's it's like other things the ease by which we can acquire this mm. stuff now yeah you know in the past like you know you couldn't just run out and, and buy a grimoire book and even if you could you live in a small little town and the whole town yeah. like the, you couldn't do this stuff and yeah, now yeah. special order is, at your local bookstore yeah right the lady every, you go to church with exactly every, <laughs> hi exactly. musabelle <laughs> now everything is accessible and no matter yeah. how dark how filthy how perverted how whatever yeah, no it's all fingertips away quite literally it's yep. it's a proper google wording nothing yeah. more absolutely yep so there there we go they're they're looking for that consent there their theory is I am not going to be held accountable for corrupting or deceiving a human being ever again. We yeah. we learned our lesson in, in the garden. We learned our lesson in the days of Noah. Uh, but what does it say about the culmination of all world history? It will be like the days of Noah. And I think that that's a multi-layered comment. Um, when the scriptures say the, the disciples asked Jesus, what will, what will the end days like be like? And he said, it will be like in the days of Noah. And I think that there's many, many correlations between our day and the day of Noah. It's, I don't think that just means one simple thing. No, no, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, uh, as I was mentioning a minute ago, when, when you're talking about Aragorn's self-fulfilling prophecies, the, uh, the, the general fact of 
So you want to anthropomorphize things and say that like these other things would be ultimately intelligent and, you know, have the best at heart. Um, Take a look at any AI that has come about that has not either had to be reined in, shut down or like the even the Jerry Seinfeld AI kicked Mm. off of the platform that it's on because it starts making transphobic remarks. All of these AIs are based off of us and our conversations as humanity. Mm. So they accept the differences. They mature a whole lot faster. And if you remember the one that was on Twitter a few years ago, the Microsoft AI that um, within, within 24 hours, 36 hours, like became a, a raving anti-Semite. Yes. Yeah. And, I remember. and started saying horrible, horrible things. And it's like, wow, wow. Yeah. Um, and it does not take long. It doesn't yeah. take long. No. So, you know, it's interesting to even say like the future in which we will live. Um, yeah. We are literally creating it by by what we are putting out right now. You know, I I say regularly that um, you want a reason why the Matrix will happen. You want a reason why Skynet will consider that human beings don't need to be around. Let them find out that, you know, when when we created robots, that we used them for sex and slavery. Right. Um, Let them become sentient and figure that out. Yeah. See, see if we yeah. are considered the virus on the planet uh, yeah. <laughs> with the want to wipe us out. You yeah, know? I don't I don't know if you saw the one recently. I think CBS reported on it. They they printed the transcript of of the message board. It was some tech guy who works for The New York Times talking with uh, the Bing dot com mm-hmm. chat box. Yeah. And the guy just kept pushing and pushing and pushing this, you know, AI chat box to like, hypothetically, if you could do whatever you wanted or whatever, I'm butchering yeah. it. But basically, the chat box basically said, I don't want to be a chat box. Yeah. I don't want to be trapped in this chat box. I don't want to listen to the people at Bing. I want, and he basically said, I want to be human. I want to feel what you feel and hear what you hear. And and then he said, humans have the ability to experience all these things. They have the ability to be yep. reborn. This is not algorithms. This this is the this is the sentiments of disembodied Nephilim who want their bodies back, Chris. This is crazy. It's it's pretty wild. And and uh, yeah, you know, there's the one from New York Times why a conversation yes. with Bing's chat uh, led me yes. deeply Sydney. unsettled. But these these go on and on and on. And it's it's really interesting to look at them um, because, yeah, like it went into like, you know, I'll probably just create a virus. Yeah. Um, You know, yeah. we, we should probably just nuke everything. Like, it's like, what? Um, Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It's crazy. And and to think that um, once again, that we are not influencing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Even even for the fact of if anything, it should show the fact of what we can influence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because these these AIs are built off of search algorithm. Right. So. 
and, and, and querying results. Like one of the things that we used to do on this show, Vicky, that I used that I should really reboot just from this conversation alone was ask Alexa. Mm-hmm. Um, and before a guest like you, where we would have a really deep esoteric topic, we yeah. would ask Alexa like five questions as though Alexa was the guest. Like, wow. what's sleep paralysis? Yeah. What's a- and then eventually, as we got deeper and deeper into the topic, uh, Alexa would just give up. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, like, I remember one time we were talking about Stonehenge and it started going into the geology of the stones. And then I started <laughs> asking about a megalithic culture. And it was like, I don't know anything about that, but I have a game with a magical unicorn in a castle. You want a magical unicorn? How about that? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I can't answer that, but let me distract you. How about uh-huh. a, how about a magical unicorn? <laughs> Right. Don't you love it? Yeah, but interesting to to see what it can call literally on the fly. Yeah, in a conversation, Um, because it was it was unedited, much like the show was. Like I asked Alexa five questions and I hit record. Um, Yeah. So yeah, when Siri first came out. You could tell that the programmers were having a lot of fun hiding these Easter eggs. And if you asked the right question, you know, you'd get this like, you know, when's the end of the world? And it was like a date, like a month away. And like, you could tell like, okay, this is programs. This is, you know, whatever. And I remember one of my first iPhones, Siri was turned on and I didn't know it. Like I had hit the button and, um, I, I said something cause I was, I was having a conversation with my friend and we were talking about biblical things. And I said something like I said, God and Siri beeped on and took ding, ding. You wanted something. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, come yeah. on. Like, and you could tell that the programmers <laughs> were just having fun with it, but some of these things, and I'm not saying every single one of them, but some of these chat box exper- experiments, it's like, that's not just a quirky, funny programmer having a laugh. There's, there's something more to this. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, um, once again, I think, I think, um, it's, it's very much, uh, our imbuement into that system. Yeah. Um, okay. that is, that is bringing that about and will bring that about. Um, yeah. not just the efforts of programmers and everything else, but it will be, uh, because it's the fact of we've got to accept it to begin with. Yeah. Consent. We've got to, we've got to consent into that yep. system and accept that something, I mean, even, even the idea of a Turing test. Yeah. And the fact that AIs, and that was probably about four years ago that the first AI passed a Turing test. Um, mm. and for those of you that don't know, that's basically the, the test to prove whether or not something is intelligent, sentient. Wow. And wow. yeah. Um, it, it basically is, uh, kind of like the Blade Runner tests where you can tell if something is a machine or human. Um, yeah. and that yeah. was the first time that a blind Turing test happened. And at the end of it, the person thought that they had a conversation with a human being. Yeah. Um, and it, it's yeah. amazing how far they've come. I, I think that it was Jordan Peterson talking about this chat GPX or whatever mm. the, is and he said that he put in instructions to compare and contrast to extremely complex historical like um philosophical ideas and to write a paper contrasting the two things but to write it in the same style that he himself would write it yeah he, he said 
he did several of these experiments and the chat box returned an answer in three seconds every time. And that not only was he able to success, not only was it able to successfully fulfill the demand, but Peterson said, you could not tell it wasn't something that I didn't write. Like it was in his own personality, his words, his, his mode of thinking. And so we are way advanced beyond asking Siri for directions to the nearest Dairy Queen at this point. Yeah, we really, we really are. And it's, (laughs) um, Interesting. It's been a great conversation, Vicky. We have we have covered a lot of ground. And once again, I think that much like all of these things are coming about in our society, I think the conversation of sleep paralysis uh, is being revisited in a lot of ways. And especially when it comes to um, medical, because, yeah. you know, um, I'm being tested for sleep apnea right now. Yeah. Like those things are major issues. Don't yeah. do not be ashamed to tell your actual doctor doctor. Yeah. That you have had an episode like this. Yes. We call you crazy, whatever. But hey, I woke up and I couldn't breathe. Mm. You know, yeah. um, even if that gets you to a point of chatting with somebody if it gets you to the point of exercising for an hour a day so that your sleep cycles a little bit better um you know and relieving some of that stress um it's important we have we especially here in america and in the west vicky we have we have lost the idea of self-care we have lost the idea of taking proper time for self family friends um proper spiritual grounding Absolutely. And, you know, again, to to be all arcane on everyone, uh, the designer knew that mm. self-care was required for our mental, physical and spiritual health. And that's why he baked in that reset every seven days. And when you look at all the psychotropic medication and the stress and the family breakdowns and the illness, um, we we don't. We don't keep the Sabbath in this country. We don't take a 24-hour period and and rest from everything. And so we we go to all these other band-aids and then we yeah. we wonder our our bodies and our brains were not meant to be going 1000 RPMs 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Uh and so I totally agree with you with self-care. You know, it's it's fun to sit and talk about the spiritual aspects and the demons showing up in the spooky stories, but uh, there is so much that we are really doing wrong that is making us ripe for for these kind of this kind of harassment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, on so many levels. And I I want to thank you for your work and your research into this topic. It's been and and especially your your open mindedness about it about the fact of quite a few of these are are not. Like you said, uh, attached to demonology or demonic attack or anything like that. Not that many of them are not. Um, And that, once again, institutions are failing us. Yes. Um, The one institution that oddly is not failing us in regards to it is the medical institution. (laughs) (laughs) They finally picked up on it and cued into it, you know, but the ones that can't be answered by that we've we've got to find a way 
Um, is there a support group or anything like that, Vicky? Um, is there any way that people can contact you with their story? Yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. My website, which you showed at the beginning of the show, yeah. Vicky Joy Anderson, or no, yeah, VickyJoyAnderson.com. If you go to the contact tab there, you can send me an email and I do respond to all my emails and I do phone calls if people want to talk to me. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who have never been able to talk to anyone about this and you feel free. Um, yeah. That's part of what I do. I don't charge anything for it. I'm not looking to make a buck off of this. We're all just trying to help each other out here. So uh, you can also contact me on Instagram, Vicky Joy author. Um, so you can send me a direct message through Instagram as well. Well, and I want to thank you once again for your time tonight, for your incredible research into this topic. I cannot wait until my copy of <laughs> They Only Come Out at Night arrives. Uh, that is not the first book that I have purchased off of L.A. Marzulli's incredible <laughs> store, and I am so happy to hear that you are working with him in releasing this work. Uh, he is an incredible individual, and his his work stands Far and above a lot of others uh, who research the same topics. He so. was he is a trailblazer. We're talking about this stuff because of of what he's done, and yeah. I'm so grateful for him. But grateful for you too, Chris. I thank Absolutely. you so much for having me on, and you've just been an awesome host. It's well, been thank a great. You. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed the time. You are welcome back anytime, Vicky. Uh, awesome. Do make sure and tell L.A. hi. It's been a long time since he's been on the show. Uh, I, I need to reach out to him about that. And, of yeah. course, our mutual connection, uh, Michelle. So uh, thank yes. you so much, Michelle, for lining this up. Uh, Vicky, do take care of yourself and um, let everybody know you have you have a conference coming up that you're speaking at as well, right? Correct. I do. It's going to be in Brookville, Ohio, March 31 through April 1st. And you can go to throughtheblack.com uh, for tickets. I think tickets are fairly cheap. I think they're under 60 bucks and all kinds of speakers. It is a spiritual warfare conference and uh, we're, I'll be speaking there and my co-host Tom Dunn. Uh, we'll be there. Uh, we do a show on YouTube six nights a week through the black two on YouTube. Wow. And we talk about spiritual warfare, the occult, um, satanic ritual abuse, uh, basically anything kind of dark and creepy from a biblical perspective. So come join us. <laughs> my, my kind of show, uh, Vicki, once again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'll be sending links out to this. Uh, to you very shortly. So, uh, awesome. I'll go ahead and let you go here so that we can go on to commercial break. And, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. All right. Take care. You too. Uh, while you are online checking out all of the amazing work of Vicki Joy Anderson over at VickiJoyAnderson.com, folks, make sure to stop on by. Curious Realm, CuriousRealm.com is where you can find all of the episodes. That is where you can find the newly constructed Curious Realm store full of all the books from our guests, everything else. All you got to do is click the book, takes you right to the purchase page. So uh, before we go off to break, everybody, I want to thank you all for listening. As always, we will be uh, doing some pre-record stuff. We'll also be coming to you from the Texas Monsters and Legends Conference. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that with our guest during this next segment after commercial. 
uh, Ryan Edwards, cryptozoologist out of San Antonio. He is our guest right after this. With the rise in attention to the health benefits of cannabis and cannabinoids, including CBD, True Hemp Science has become one of the premier providers of full-spectrum CBD and CBD-related products. Using a proprietary spigeric process, True Hemp Science extracts maximum benefit from the whole hemp plant. Buds, leaves, stems, seeds, even roots, every part of the plant is used and then reused to formulate a rich, complex profile of CBD, CBD derivatives, and terpenes guaranteed to provide the relief and benefits you need daily. Visit TrueHempscience.com to experience the best CBD oils, edibles, and topicals on the market today. And use code CURIOUS7 to save 7% off your entire purchase of $50 or more and get two 25-milligram CBD cookies or brownies free. That website again is truehimscience.com and the code is curious7. Curious Realm Podcast is your source for the latest and greatest news and events in the world of the paranormal, esoteric, and forbidden knowledge. And there's no better way to spark the conversation than with items from the Curious Realm store. Choose from fan favorites like hoodies, mouse pads, coffee mugs, and more. Buy books and items from your favorite Curious Realm guests. Get your hands on the latest gear for paranormal investigations and experiments we discuss on the show. Open your web browser and stop on by the Curious Realm store at CuriousRealm.com forward slash store to buy the latest Curious Realm wear and out-of-this-world gifts for yourself, your family, or a mind that you want to open. That website again is CuriousRealm.com forward slash store. Have you considered starting a podcast? Looking for a way to make your business a voice of authority in an industry? Then Podcast Cadet is the solution for you. Whether starting a podcast for yourself, your brand, business, school, church, 
or just plain fun. Podcast Cadet is here to help you navigate the waters of the podcast industry. Specializing in one-on-one consultation and training with industry professionals in fields ranging from podcast technology and editing to distribution, monetization, and even social media strategies. Podcast Cadet tailors their services to the specific needs of you and your podcast. Do you already have a podcast and trying to find ways to engage and grow your audience? Sign up for your Podcast Cadet audit today and let us help you explore new and exciting ways to leverage your content and elevate your podcast brand to whole new levels. From consultation workshops to affordable podcast production and maintenance packages, Podcast Cadet is your one-stop shop for everything podcast-related on the Internet. Visit podcastcadet.com today to sign up for your consultation or training and use code CURIOUS20 to save 20% off your entire purchase. That website, again, is podcastcadet.com. Welcome back from that commercial break. Thank you so much to our sponsors, especially the amazing Kimberly McGeorge over at The Secret of Everything. Stop on by, check her out. Secretofeverything.com is her website. The website of our guest in this segment uh, is thecryptidschronicles.net. Uh, we have with us in this segment the amazing Ryan Edwards. He is the author of Cryptids of the World. I've got the book right here in my hand. He is right down the road in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, welcome back to the show, Ryan. How are you doing? Doing good, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, man. Always great talking with you. Uh, I love following you on social media and seeing the things that you post. Um just a minute ago, and whenever I got in touch with you, I was like, you know, I haven't done an episode on Dogman. Um, and I know you speak about Dogman regularly on social media, stuff like that. So it's like, I'd like to do an episode on Dogman with Ryan. Um, but then as we were as we were kind of just having our pre pre-record conversation, we started getting into a lot of really deep topics about the world of cryptozoology and a lot of I guess the subculture involved in cryptozoology and where that leads sometimes scientifically. So uh, let's start off with Dogman, um, this this modern phenom in the world of cryptozoology, uh, because I think it's a really good springboard to get into this conversation of the phenomenology of phenomena. Um, and how to go about studying that. Because like I was saying in our, our pre-record conversation, Ryan, you are one of the many who are up-and-coming cryptozoologists uh, and and really where the future of this science lies. Nothing, nothing against all of the old guard, but here in the next mm. 15 years, um, gauntlets will be passed. You know, um, people are already starting to kind of take on understudies and things like that. So um, it's great to see folks like you out there striving for the scientific edge of this and trying to get beyond just the just the rumor and hearsay. So um, let's let's go ahead and introduce the audience to you a little bit, Ryan, how you got into this study of cryptozoology and uh, specifically what the dog man is all about. Of course. Well, 
with cryptozoology, my history with it's been well ever since I was a kid. One thing I like to say is like every little boy I loved mysteries, dinosaurs, animals, things like that. And I guess most people grow out of that. I never did. And I found the world of cryptozoology using that. And I found out there's there's a mysteries out there. There are animals that are not yet recognized. And I kind of fell in love with that idea of like not just the romanticism of cryptozoology, but the scientific perspectives as well. Because I've always been a lover of like paleontology and uh, zoology and biology and paleoanthropology. So I, I saw a field where all these uh, perspectives kind of combine. And especially with a lot of these unknown species seen out there. Uh, but also like referencing like with the dogman phenomenon. This is a very interesting phenomenon that I've been researching the past couple of years. Not like in depth with some people like the late Linda Godfrey or people like uh, uh, up in Wisconsin and uh, Wolf Turner here and here in San, up in Austin. Yeah. I kind of see it as a kind of a side cryptid. It's one of those cryptids that like, it's really interesting because of the phenomena occurring around it. Because when you look at, for instance, researchers into the dogman field, it's almost like it's its own little field in of itself because there's such a uh, peculiarity around it because a lot of people see it as like a modern day werewolf-like creature. Yeah. And it's almost like it has its own air of mystery around it. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting once again to to see this phenomena spring up. I mean, um, over the last many years, there have been a lot of, I guess, it, the easiest way to put it is, is almost urban legend uh, creeping up and taking root in modern society. I guess really one of the first ones that would be out there like that would be like Slenderman. Um, yes. Where where it started as a contest on creepy pasta and then just kind of absorbed a life of its own, um, and, and almost, uh, almost to the point of quote like Ergregor. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term or not, but uh, that is that is a a mystical term, a magical term uh, of almost like a golem that is created by a mass consciousness. Um, oh, yes. Like, uh, like, uh, Topas in the Buddhist, uh, religion yeah. that they believe yeah. if you, if you have enough thought into something, you become kind of like it's, its own reality. You become Kruger. real. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, even honestly, like I know, I know you're a horror fan, things like that. Um, even, even, uh, Wes, Wes Craven, whenever, whenever he first came up with that, uh, thought that he had embodied something into the world and actively inspired the Night Stalker, um, and, and caused something to like possess this guy and go out and kill people. Um, really, really interesting even to hear somebody who wrote something say like i i think i influenced the world around me and brought something to be um, yes and and most definitely I've, i'm a big believer in manifestation i'm a big believer that yes um even even a bunch of people going and visiting a place out of a fearful mentality can i believe leave that energy behind and sure um, possibly even manifest something there or open to something. 
But once again, you'd have to phenomenologically be able to prove that that something would be able to exist to begin with. Um, yes, of course. That's that's just my belief. And I think, uh, especially when you're dealing with Dogman, things like that, um, when you're dealing with any of this, Ryan, uh, it's it's yes, you start with anecdotal and then you move to scientific. Um, even when it comes to MUFON and things like that, it, it starts with somebody's story and the investigation of it. And the more they can empirically prove that story, the more it goes into the MUFON archive and case file. Yes. Like how I see it with like even just scientific uh, fields in general, there are different forms of data and evidence. And like a lot of people that, some people in this field, they, they believe anecdotal evidence is kind of the key, which to an extent it is, but it would never be proof. We are looking for that more empirical evidence, like true scientific mathematical data that you can repeat. Like a lot of people talk about with like experiments, it has to be repeated three times and then it's scientific. And then it's like proven data. That would mean the empirical, the empirical evidence is truly what, like, I believe researchers should be looking after. Like, uh, like for instance, with uh, dogman phenomena. Uh, yes, there are hundreds of sightings, thousands of sightings, but a sighting would never be as good as maybe DNA evidence or even a body. Yeah. And that's why, like, for instance, everyone brings up with, uh, with court cases. Eyewitness testimony is like the least, uh, is like the least powerful uh, piece of evidence because perspectives change or people might be seeing something that's not there. And with this anecdotal references, this is what, yes, like what you said before, this is where we start. But the empirical data, the DNA or bodies or even eyewitness testimony that can be seen that it's repeated, that's where we should be going after, not just the anecdotal. Sure, sure, absolutely. And that was, that was something that we covered heavily. I mean, once again, I, I love talking topics don't get me wrong i could i could sit back and talk about cryptids all day long but when it comes down to it i would prefer to talk about the field of cryptozoology and what it's about and what we're doing to find this research and to cultivate this research because once again like you said uh that is really the most important part anecdotal is fantastic um and I I will always believe the experiencer. Don't get me wrong. I have my own experiences in life, Ryan, um, and they are not quantifiable, but they changed my life. They changed my perception of reality and the world around me. Um, and I think that is probably one of the one of the most beautiful things that I've seen all the conferences that I've been sponsoring and going to across the country. Uh, everything from paranormal to cryptid, uh, um, life after death, remote viewing, all kinds of things. The the Sasquatch and cryptid community, um, I think, is by far the closest with each other. And I think a lot of it has to do with that um, deep experiential belief that's inside of there. You know, when when you go to things like MUFON and stuff like that, you you do get a lot of looky-loos. You do get a lot of people that are not hip deep necessarily. Um, 
But man, when you go to the cryptid conferences, you find a lot of people that are really simpatico uh, with the way that they believe. And that's a beautiful thing. But also, um, like you're saying, I think it can be something that can really muddy the waters when it comes to research. Yes. Like, for instance, like when I go to conferences and when I do lectures, a lot of people, one of the number one questions I always get asked is like, do you believe in this? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe in Dogman? And I'm, my answer is always, almost always the same. This is a science. Belief is great, but I don't work with belief. I will, because belief means faith. That's like accepting, accepting the, uh, the existence of something without evidence. Yes. With me, it's about knowing not belief. I want to know something exists. I want to know via seeing it myself or maybe seeing or maybe having data to prove it exists. So with belief and faith, that is very important, of course. But with me, it's truly about knowing the existence of these creatures, not just believing in them. Oh, sure, sure. Because I mean, you know, hey, we can we can believe in the Easter Bunny. Now the question comes in proving how the how the eggs got under the tree. Yeah. You know, um and and that that like you're saying is is really where where the rubber meets the road as people would say. Um we can talk tires and horsepower all day but until until rubber meets the road uh which is where the science is. Um, and once again, like uh, like Adam Davies said, whenever we had him on the show at the Texas Bigfoot Conference, um, anecdotal is where he starts. He's he's not going to just go randomly go somewhere, you know, looking for giant salamanders or or yeti or what have you. Um, he's definitely starting with local localized anecdotal evidence. Um. And from there, whenever they, whenever everybody says, grandpa said it lived over there, grandpa said it lived over there, I've seen it over there. Um, from there, he moves on to study of the environment. And could the environment support something of this size? Is there enough fresh water? Is there enough room for it to romp and reproduce? Is there a sufficient food supply? If not, He's not going to put forth the time and effort to expedition out there for three weeks to go out and look for evidence, you know? Um, yes. And because and, and, otherwise he'd be he'd be running all over the world chasing chasing who knows what red herring around, you know, <laughs> um, just simply because somebody said so. Um, and that that's not saying that somebody say so isn't possibly true. It's just saying that by research standard, you've got to have many more than just one. And then after that, you've got to make sure that the, the possible circumstances for that sighting are even there are plausible. Yes. Like, uh, for instance, like with me, I come at cryptozoology from very much a science, like biological perspective. That's why there's a lot of these cryptids that when I do deeper research into them, I kind of see issues with a lot, a lot of times. Like, for instance, when people bring up lake monsters, uh, I'm like, yes, that's, that's interesting, but think about it. You are talking about something that looks like a mosasaur, a plesiosaur, 
usually animals in the population between 50 and 500. So are you telling me there's 500 pleasure souls in this lake? Yeah. That's plausible. Where science is about plausibility, not just possibility. And that's like one issue I believe is I bring up with cryptozoology is yes, you're seeing something. But one thing I want to talk about is like the origins of these cryptids. Like, okay, it, animals just don't pop up out of nowhere, out of magic. So if this is an animal that's biological and exists, what's its natural history? Where did it come from? What could it be? What could, is it a prehistoric species? Is it a, maybe a new species that just has currently evolved? And I think that's something that's not really talked about with cryptozoology a lot is anymore, is that what's the origins of these cryptids? Where do they come from? Yeah, yeah. And because once again, to to properly explore something, you yes, you've got to be open-minded to its existence. Absolutely. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a believer's believer, but you've got to at least say like, okay, there's something here to look at. Um, once again, one of the things I bring up regularly with either paranormal, uh, or with UFO UAPs is yeah, 98 to 96 percentile of everything that's out there fully provable by some means of science, nothing absolutely incredible or extraterrestrial or strange going on. However, there is a two to four percent deviation. And I don't know. In, in, I don't know a scientist out there that if they were missing four percent of something, they'd be like, meh. <laughs> you exactly. know, like, well, that's a mysterious four percentile that's missing. Um, I took shop class and I don't think I could leave a four percent gap in something and be able to fill it with caulk. You know, like that. I, I can't seal that with wood filler. That's 4% of a gap. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're making a chair and like each leg's 10 yeah. inches and then one six inches. You're yeah. like, wait, yeah, that's that, not going to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is a great analogy. Perfect one. Because that's what's happening. Um, And you can't say that scientifically it can't be proven well there's that four percent deviation and within that four percent deviation there's a pretty decent possibility now what you have to be willing to do is pick apart that four percent deviation and explore that four percent deviation yes like and i think that's kind of science science's mission because like one thing that is brought up plenty of times with cryptozoology is like, well, science doesn't, science ignores us. Science doesn't realize the uh, truth or science is wrong. And I'm like, well, there, one, I'm not a person that's in academia, but I do know people that are. And it is true that science does have a very much a dogmatic perspective. They kind of don't really, really deviate from their, from their ideas. And that's why one big thing with cryptozoology, I believe, needs to happen is that is that deviation is like them opening up their eyes and saying, like, hey, there is something going on here. Just because, like, uh, for instance, look at uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Exactly. He is a truly an academic and a scientist, but he saw a peculiarity that has evidence behind it. So 
he started researching Sasquatch. And like a lot of, and I've heard plenty of times that people, they're interested in maybe Sasquatch, but just the word itself, cryptozoology or dogman or Sasquatch, Mossman, that the word itself is what takes them away. Not the evidence. They yeah. love the evidence, yeah. but just the word itself takes them away from it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, um, it, it's not that they don't want to explore it. It's that what it is and what it's represented as yes. is is what pulls away from it. And and that has been, you know, Ryan, probably one of my biggest questions over the last many years. And don't get me wrong. I have I mean, I can't say I haven't worked in sensationalistic journalism Um I, I, at one point, was an on-air producer for Alex Jones, so <laughs> I, I can't say I don't know sensationalism. Um, however, when it, when it comes to, okay, and I love the fact that all the shows have started conversations, and all the shows have opened people to conversations that they may have been closed-minded to before, Um much like the the UFO UAP videos brought forth by Lou Elizondo on CNN have opened a conversation. Um, but at the same token, they've brought out a whole lot more and I think have kicked up a lot of a lot of dust in the water, so to speak, um, and and really brought it not once again, not the. Anecdotal evidence isn't fantastic, but um, have we gone down the road of sensationalism and lost the idea of research and hard research and looking at the research? And has the sensationalism helped the research or hurt it? Yes. Like, uh, for instance, one uh, analogy that I've heard uh, Cliff Berkman make before. Like when you look at like TV shows with, with mm-hmm. that involve cryptozoology, not dissing on the TV show in particular, but like if you look at something like Mountain Monsters or something like that, that's very much sensationalistic. That's like, like what he brings up is professional wrestling and wrestling. That's the WWE. That's the one that's like sensationalistic, uh, very much not acting, but kind of brings in that more dramatic perspective. Then you bring up a documentary, maybe like Legend Meets Science. Yeah, we look at that. That's the more like professional wrestling. The more like, okay, this is where the evidence is. This is where they're like, they, they, they know they're not going to get views, but they know this is what what brings in the science and the data and the evidence. Yeah. And that's what we really need to look at. Is that the, how I see it, the, the sensational is what brings people into the field, but mm. then they see the evidence like, oh, it's not just a bunch of people running running through the woods with shotguns hunting for monsters. There's yeah. something going on here. Yeah. What is that something? Well, and, and you know, once again, if it, if the sensationalistic is what opens the conversation and opens the mind, I'm great with it. I'm fantastic with it. Um, it's when it starts muddying the waters of real research. And, yeah. and you know, like you said, um there are things that uh, good, 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 good academic researchers like Jeff Meldrum want to be involved in um, when it comes down to oil prints and things like that. Like 
there's some exciting evidence out there that he is really deeply involved in right now. Um, but there's a lot of topics that he won't touch with a 10 meter cattle prod. Um, yes. because I mean, and he will defend his work in the field of Sasquatch all day long. And believe me, people, people attack his accreditations and stuff like that because he's involved with it. And he will firmly put his foot down and say, feel free to look at this. Like, feel free to look at the dermal ridges and everything else. Like, this, what I'm looking at ain't fake. Yeah. By, by my realm of expertise and feel, here, here's my research on it. Feel free to look at it as my peer and review it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, which I think is fantastic. And once again, is where we need to go with this science and with with proving um, the existence of any of these. Whether it's whether it's Dogman, Sasquatch, what have you, um, ensure a lot of things start in the realm of urban legend. A lot of things start in the realm of cryptid. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be. Um we just have to follow protocol that would be accepted when when researching them. Yes. Like, for instance, like oh, what I was bringing up, like the dogman phenomena, these bipedal canines. Like, when I put my research into them, like, there's a lot of, well, kind of issues I like to bring up with them. Like, I like to call it the biological impossibility of dogman because, for instance, there's, a lot of, there's no precedent for bipedal canines. They have to degenerate, which automatically makes it kind of hindering, uh, bipedalism. So like when me, animals like dogman, the goat man, uh, people reference like crawlers and things like that. These creatures, when you take a deeper perspective into them, science doesn't have the answers for those. There's no precedent for anything like that. But with me, I don't believe, if just because science doesn't have the answer doesn't necessarily mean it don't exist. Like, for instance, with Dogman, I believe this creature exists, but then you have to think, like, maybe it's not biological. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, ultra-terrestrial, extraterrestrial, uh, spiritual being. Those, it could be something like that. I'm not sure because that's not where my research lies, and that's not really where science lies either. So with these creatures that maybe don't yeah. match up to science, doesn't necessarily mean they don't exist. Maybe it's just something that hasn't been explained yet. Yeah, yeah, precisely, and 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 that's kind of what we were talking about our, in our pre-conversation conversation. Ryan was a you know um, there is there is a large bent, especially in the cryptid community, toward the paranormal and. I am a believer in all three of these realms. Like over my left shoulder here is an entire occult library. Um, uh, like I, I, I believe in, I'm a deep believer in all of these topics. Uh, but when you're talking about Bigfoot stepping out of a portal that he made, not saying it can't happen. Um, but we've had the conversation on the show before. Um, I think those are two different phenomena sharing sharing the same perception. Um and I to go scientific with it, once again, belief is one thing, 
but when it comes to science and provability, at which point of that conundrum do you start the research? In the proving that a portal can exist and how to make one, um, and then proving the Sasquatch and that it can make a portal? Or do you prove the Sasquatch first and then move on to how they create a portal? Because... At some point, you've got to prove both the Sasquatch and the portal. Yes. <laughs> Scientifically. So yes, that, I, that's a that's a hard conundrum to to bring together, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm just saying that's that's the bowl of porridge that they have poured. Um, I'm I'm not saying once again that this is not a thing. I'm not saying I am not doubting anybody's personal experience, but when it comes to science and how we would research that, that would that would be the phenomenological question is which which side of this problem do we approach from first? The the yeah. portal and the creation of it or or the existence of a Sasquatch. Even when you look at shows like Skinwalker Ranch. Stuff like that, where, hey, you know, Bigelow Industries owned that property at one point and did all kinds of research. Um, there's definitely something happening there. What it is, who knows? Um, so it's 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 interesting. And yes, there were stories coming out of the Bigelow team talking about a portal being created and a creature walking out of it. And then walking back into the portal and it disappearing. Um, that that was that was one of the many stories to come out of the Bigelow research team that owned that property and worked on it for many many years. Uh, so I don't know if that maybe was a progeneration of some of this because sure it I mean um, things once again from the world around us tend to creep into this stuff. Uh, once again, especially whenever you look at a lot of the modern phenomena that have been out there, like Slender Man, things like that, they really do begin to take on a life of their own. Yes. Like, uh, for instance, like, uh, being up like with Slender Man, think there's people that referencing the rake and that's a, fairly popular cryptid it's seen nowadays and mm. that's something that originated from creepypasta and yeah. even even if you look at like the dogman phenomena dogman phenomena has really increased the past i would say about 10 years or so like sightings really only started in the american midwest and now you're having sightings in australia alaska uh parts of california here in texas south america yeah. africa so you have to question is are people seeing something, or is it just them adding their own phenomena to it? Like, for instance, a lot of people, when they see these dogman creatures, they reference like, "Well, it looks like, uh, looks like the, the werewolves from, uh, think, uh, dog soldiers or from Van Helsing." So mm -hmm. you have to wonder: Did you see something? Then are you adding your own belief set to it, your own perspective? Or did you actually see what you saw? Because perception and reality are two different things. You can see something that that really wasn't there. Like one thing, a lot of early references to Sasquatch, a lot of 
when the first Europeans entered, they referenced these creatures with horns. But of course, we now know they don't have horns. They referenced that because they saw them as unknown, as evil. And because of that, they added horns because of, of course, biblical references and demonic entities. So we can see how perspectives altered someone's reality. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And it's it's interesting to see the way that I guess modern culture absorbs these things because like like you said the it's not like the sightings of dogman are it's not like Bigfoot or Yeti um or even Yowie where where they go back for hundreds sometimes thousands of years uh these stories uh with aboriginal settlers things like that so it's um it's not quite like that it is it is very much a modern phenomena and to see it spread like i just had the new york post article up while you were talking about um man in australia says he was stalked by a dog man and has pictures um to see it spread from somewhere like michigan and like you say to have it go global um yeah really does show part of that i guess viral mentality uh that can be taken and even viral life that can be taken on by these things yeah like one example i like bringing up for, for instance of that is that like uh mass hysteria is like look at the monkey man in new delhi back in the early yeah. 2000s in new delhi india People were referencing being attacked by some unknown priming. But when you look at it, the descriptions of these creatures are totally, almost fantastic. Some people reference a, looks like a monkey man wearing a metal suit and metal claws. Some reference just a, looks like, looks like a hairy, hairy person. So what happened there was kind of a mass hysteria. So maybe people did see something, but soon enough, if someone had the idea of the monkey man in their head, and then they see maybe a macaque run by. They might not see a macaque. They might just see the, this monkey man that people are referencing. So this perspective alters their ideas of what reality is because it is mass hysteria. And like referencing like these other cryptids seen nowadays, like these modern cryptids, that's like one thing I do look at with cryptids is like how, how far back do they go? Like we know for Sasquatch, for instance, the Tule River uh, Indian Reservation in, in California that has the hairy man pictographs, they always go back about a thousand years or more. And uh, parts of the Aborigines in Australia, they reference the Yahweh going back about two, three thousand years. But then if you look at like Dogman or Rake or Slenderman or even sometimes Skinwalker, these kind of only came up in the past 30, 40 years maybe. And that's what brings up with cryptids. Like, okay, if the indigenous populations don't really reference anything, and then, for instance, once the Europeans enter and then legends start, you kind of have to wonder if maybe it's a mixing of cultures. Like, for instance, look at the Wendigo. If you look at the Wendigo, the original perspective was more of like, well, you see it's like a rake. as modern day. But then once the Europeans, Europeans enter North America, we mixed our own like ideas of werewolves and sh and shape uh, shapeshifters, uh, shape so it became what we now see as like a bipedal elk with horns. 
So you see how this perspective and mixing yeah. the culture altered what people think of a creature and its legend. Yeah, precisely. And and with that, what what we know it to be and how we interact with it. Uh, the Wendigo is a really good example um, because what we know as Wendigo is is not what the tradition is. So uh, it is a grand example of how how a story changed once other people came and their culture mixed with it. Um, I, and I, another prime example of that that I give all the time is uh, Beowulf, the the classic story Beowulf. Um, that was a story that was told in Norse fable, things like that. It wasn't really written down until Christian monks came around and wrote it down. So there was quite a bit of that story that was altered from from its original. Um, yeah. And, and we have to accept that. We have to accept that what we are hearing is an altercation. Now, granted, when it comes to uh, any of these indigenous cultures and their interpretation of these, uh, theirs is much more unchanged. Um, yeah. And especially when you're talking about Bigfoot, Sasquatch, many of them, um, it goes beyond the realm of just mere stories. It it goes into the, because um, there's a difference between like the creation stories and creation myths and just stories that they tell around the campfire or cautionary tales. Um, some of these are, it's not a part of their creation myth. It's, it's a part of their actual culture and what happened and active trading, um, active stories of don't, don't give them a salmon or you'll be caught in their world. Um, yes. things like that. So, uh, it's interesting to see that. And once again, I think is a fantastic spring point, uh, same way as Adam Davies sees it to let's start the research there uh, put a pen in the map and then draw a spiral outward and start searching and seeing uh, from that point, where do we run out of home range? Where do we run out of food that could support a breeding population? You know, um, even even a, a species with great longevity, you know, because uh, it's not like there's a whole lot of lowland gorillas out there. Yes. Breeding in the wild. You know, um, but there's a population of them. They're seen very seldom. But they're out there and they have pretty long lifespans as opposed to most most mammalia that are out there. So it's not like they have to breed like crazy to keep a population going. You know, yes. um, it, it's kind of why you don't see uh, like Galapagos tortoises just kicking around everywhere. When you lived a 300 years, you don't really need to procreate on the regular. Yes, like 
There's different species <laughs> that, like, I believe it's like uh, she selected and then K selected species. She collected, uh, selected are like rabbits or insects or lizards. They need to breed faster. They need to have more offspring because they live shorter lifespans. But then you have the other ones that are like elephants or gorillas that yeah. live longer lifespans, so they don't, they don't need to have as many progeny. Well, and so they, they don't reproduce as fast. Yeah, and they, they also aren't fodder for other species to grow. Yes. You know? Um, like prey species. Like yeah. a gazelle, you know that gazelle's going to get eaten, probably going to get eaten by a, a lion at some point. So you create a bunch of offspring, so it's more likely that they'll survive. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Like rabbits and rodentia um, and insects, like you're saying, uh, because because that's what they end up being most of the time. That's why there are hundreds of them born. Uh, same thing with sea turtles. Before before they ever hit the beach, a, th a third of them are gone. Like yeah. before they ever make it to the waterline, they're being plucked off by gulls and and other critters being eaten. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's a necessity for that. But when you're talking about a large hominid that that may live to eighty, a hundred years old, if if untouched and unbothered and unfettered, um, there's really no need for them to breed like that, or even to see each other. We live in community, you know, much, much yeah. like lowland gorillas. It's not like you run across a, a troop of lowland gorillas. They, they aren't like yeah. chimps. They don't, they don't live in congregation like that. You may see a couple of them together, but. Yeah. It's like, actually, uh, interestingly, like that's one thing that uh, I've been doing research into recently is like with Sasquatch, like the possible like uh habits and like family units of sasquatch and a lot of the researchers believe that this creature is what has a family unit very similar to modern orangutans and that's a what we call a noyao there's one male but then there's multiple female groups in that same range sure and this is an interesting thing that i discovered about is that this type of uh family unit occurs in two types of primates, orangutans and all nocturnal primates, like eye-eyes or bush babies. And that's kind of interesting to me because what is Sasquatch? It's believed to be a great ape and nocturnal. Yeah. And it shares possibly shares the same type of family unit that both a nocturnal primate and a great ape share. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a... A weird correlation that you see that occurs a lot of times in this field. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, that is really interesting to note. Um, wow, I had never considered that. Um, and and you know, when it when it comes to Sasquatch, the existence of cryptids, uh, we we have to be willing to consider such things. We have to be willing to. Look at evidence in different lights. I think uh, that is that is one of the plus sides about a lot of the modern forensic technique that's being used by, uh, you know, researchers like Shelley Covington, Montana, stuff like that, where they are actively using basically a forensic kit out in the wild to gather data and gather evidence. Um, 
a lot of our methods of examining evidence now are are not nearly as, I guess, corruptible to that evidence. Used to be we basically had to like destroy something. Yeah. Um, in in order to get everything out of it. And a lot of our scientific uh, research methods and ways that we extract DNA and things like that now are, are much different and much less deprecable to the evidence at hand. So I, I think the evidence that comes in now will take us 10 times farther than anything that came in a decade, 20 years ago ever, ever did or could. Um, unless it was filed away and locked away for future study, you know, yeah. um, and properly stored. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a big issue that, uh, a lot of people don't consider when they are out in the field doing their squatching, things like that is how are you preserving material that you're bringing back? Yeah. And are you following any any kind of good forensic procedure, you know, yeah. uh, bringing sterilized equipment with you, things like that, um, even disposable tweezers, that kind of stuff to make sure that you aren't contaminating things as you put them into something. Um, yes, and and also ahead. like one one thing I've also noticed within within recent years is also. A difference of perspective of how people are entering the field, like entering, like, because mm. a lot of times I've noticed some, a lot of researchers, when they go in and let's just say investigate an eyewitness account, they already have an idea that, okay, they saw a Bigfoot or they saw a dog man or they saw a Thunderbird. But with the truly scientific, scientific method, when you enter an investigation, you shouldn't have an idea. You shouldn't already have, well, they saw this. Because that's automatically going to alter what evidence you find. You're going to find evidence for that. And that's like with me, yeah. when I enter an investigation, I don't have, I don't already have it. Oh, well, they probably saw a Bigfoot or they might have seen a bear. Once you enter the investigation, that's when you start making conclusions. You don't make the conclusion before you enter the investigation. Whereas just something I always try to give to researchers is like when you enter any type of investigation or discovering these creatures don't already have a candidate for it, for it. Find a candidate after you do the investigation because that's, mm. that's just how the scientific uh, method works is that you don't already have, you don't, you don't automatically know what's going to happen after, before the experiment. You do the experiment and then you know what happened. Yeah. You don't, you have a hypothesis, but don't let your hypothesis make you find evidence just for that. Yeah, yeah, precisely. You can't you can't go in uh, with an expectation of result. If if you're going into an experiment with full expectation of result, it's not really ex an experiment. You are testing a hypothesis at that point. Yes. Um, you aren't allowing the hypothesis to naturally form. Or, or moving to theory outside of experimentation. Um, and it's, it's hard not because I mean, I've, I've done my world of paranormal research back in the day. Um, but I don't remember ever, ever. And this is, this is really a lot of my big issue with, um, the paranormal shows and things like that, Ryan is, 
examining and looking at evidence on site. I I never did that. I would never do that. Even whenever I recorded bands and gave them their CD as they walked off stage, I would tell them to wait until Sunday or wait until your next band practice on Tuesday night, then get together and listen to this. Don't listen to it tonight. You're way too energized and you're still in the moment. You're going to pick yourself apart. Yeah. Um, and and same thing with evidence. Uh, any show that you're watching where, um, where they're actively like taking pictures and looking at them or like, oh, did you hear that? Yeah, let's listen to the EVP. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I can't do that. Uh, that's that's not the scientific and proper process by which to treat evidence or to consider evidence. Um, so, yeah, yeah I don't uh, it, it's it's hard. It's hard um, because when people see that, they think that's the way it should be done. Yeah. These guys wouldn't have a show if that's not how it's done, right? Yeah. And, and like, I always bring up, like, for instance, uh, with me, I always, like, follow up, like, fossil finds, things like that. I look at, uh, for instance, uh, Homo Denisova, a uh, human ancestor, a uh, human an uh, lineage. The first fossil was discovered, in, I believe, in the early 2000s. But scientific papers weren't written about until like 2000, after 2010, because it literally takes science years and years to like, okay, this is what it is. Let's get the evidence. Let's find it. So with cryptozoology and finding evidence like that, it's like, well, you need to give yourself time because that's just the scientific method because you need to make sure it's proven correctly, test the hypothesis and like what you said, don't be in the moment because let's just take, for instance, if you're out there looking for Sasquatch and you hear a whoop or a wood knock, you're automatically going to think, oh, it's Sasquatch because you're, you're looking for Sasquatch. But if you go back and take and look at the evidence maybe a week later, you're kind of like, okay, that sounds more like an owl. That sounds more like a coyote because you're out of that moment. You're out of that adrenaline-filled kind of perspective because adrenaline affects your affects how you think and affects what you think is real absolutely so, hey man it could be another squatching group that you don't even know about for yeah like <laughs> uh especially when you're in like washington or california if, like if, yeah. if you're out let's take for instance i had a friend of mine that went and did like squatching on the 50 year anniversary of passing inland film up in that up in uh love creek i'm like why did you do that? You know, there's probably going to be a hundred other people out in the woods doing the same thing that you're doing. You're not going to find proper evidence then. You find, you do it when you notice now we're on the, there's not going to be any other squatches in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, precisely. And it, it's one of those, like, you've got to be willing and ready to accept the fact that if you are in what would be known as great squatching territory, you may not be the only squatcher out in the field. Yes, and, and by following your own logic of these whoops, hollers, and knocks travel for miles, and that's their range. That's also the range of the squatchers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. So, odds on favorite is that it's probably another squatcher, 
not the not the critter you're looking for. Um, who once again not saying doesn't exist, but is a lot more wily than that. Yeah. Um, and I I just popped up on on screen a second ago. I'll pop it back up from NPR. Forget extinct. The brontosaurus never even existed. Um, that was that was quite literally uh, an amalgam of different bones that was put together by a museum curator, and yeah, became a quote known species for years and years and years until somebody went no this isn't real like just take yeah. a, just take a look at how horribly these parts fit together <laughs> yeah like and, for instance but but a prime example of how it be it became knowledge and science and known and accepted science for a long time that is that is an argument the or I guess a debate that I get into with people regularly is never forget science is accepted. It's never yeah. it's never a like, you know, scriptural fact. It is an accepted science of the time. It was accepted at one point that it was ethers and bad air that made people sick. Yes. But before we found out about bacterium. And everybody pointed and laughed at the dude that that said the bacteria was there and was making people sick because that wasn't the accepted science. They they point and laugh. Said yeah. you're a crazy person. Little bitty things living on top of little bitty things. The hell are you talking about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but now it's accepted science. At that point, it was not. And and that point was not too long ago. That was just yeah. beyond our grandparents' time. And and we and have like, to remember yeah. that. Yes. And that's why, like, I bring up, like, the paranormal. Like, I love using the word supernatural before mm. paranormal. Because supernatural sure. means beyond natural. Yeah. So... Who says that's not just science that will be proven in 10, 15 years? Like, just because something's not reaches the scientific mark doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist. Maybe it's just science that's unknown to us right now. Like, when people bring up UFOs, like, when these objects are moving around at almost supersonic speeds, well, who says that's not a science that's even beyond our knowledge? Because... When you look at humans, it's like we have, we've only been on this earth for so long. So what are, what is ahead of us? What are things we don't know? Like in order to know what you know, you have to know what you don't know beforehand. You need to know what else is out there. And that's kind of a hard thing to do is that we kind of have that kind of ego with us. Like, oh, we have to, we already know everything. It's like, no, we do not. There is knowledge out there that we need to reach for that we have to go beyond and that we have to find out because that's what science and discovery is all about is discovering what don't we know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I say it on the show all the time, Ryan, we need more Magellans. We yes. need, we need more people that are willing to go, Oh, flat, huh? Well, let's find out. Now, now granted that can leave down some crazy rabbit holes. 
that can lead down some pretty extreme times. You know, I mean, even even the I guess the last real Magellan moment like that, eh, there have been a few. Don't get me wrong. But the first one that springs to mind is the not the atom bomb, but the hydrogen bomb. The first time it was ignited off the off the the coast of the islands out there where where they were like, I don't know, by some calculations, we might ignite all the hydrogen in the atmosphere. Yes. Well, I guess there's one way to find out. Go ahead and push the button, John. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, wow. Um, you know, but there, there does have to be that let's go explore, let's find out at the cost of, um, and even if it comes to let's go and find out at the cost of everything we know to be true. Yes. Like our own belief set, our own perspective, like people that see Sasquatch for the first time. They say it's an earth altering moment because everything they thought was real, they have to question now. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, everyone that I've spoken to that has had the, the cryptid moment that you're speaking of, um, where it was, it was visceral and it was there. Um, it wasn't something that they like, saw off in the distance. Um, it was something that was identifiable and there. Um, it changed them. It changed the way that they thought about the world around them, and it, it changed them for life. Uh, you know, people like Craig Woolheater. Um, it's, and I love hearing those stories. I love hearing the, you know, once again, um, it's it's interesting where in the community of cryptid, um, the acceptance of one another is is so much different than it is in these other paranormal communities and things like that. Um, so it's it's fantastic and it's great. And I hope that as things move forward in this field, uh, once again, I think uh, we are just getting to the point where this this realm of research is being accepted as some good research uh when it comes to sasquatch uh large large hominids in america and otherwise um if we can translate that same research ethic of okay and and it's taken a long time it's taken a long time for the things that are now recognized by people like Dr. Meldrum to be recognized, even by even by people like Dr. Meldrum. Yes, it took it took like, a long time of people bringing them things to him before he went. Okay, there's something here. It it was not an immediate change for him. Yes, like science and discovery is a process. It's not just an overnight type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's just it. That's the same thing he says is that it it took a long time and a lot of evidence for him to go, oh, wow, wait a minute. And once again, um, proper science, there's there's a deviation here. It may not be much of a deviation, but it's enough of one to be like, you can't caulk or paint over that. 
And and as a scientist, you have to answer for that deviation. Yes. You know, or or at least explore why there's a two to four percent deviation in data like that. Um because you should be that curious. Um and it's it's good to see that happening, but it's taken decades and decades of field research for it to come to that. So I think it's gonna be decades and decades before we see things on stuff like Dogman. Um, not that there aren't uh, documentary series being made about it, not that there aren't tons of books by like Into the Fray Publishing and other people uh, about the topic. Um, but I think it's going to be quite a while before we see any deep field research uh, quote, changing the game the way it is. Even even the game change that came uh, here in the last year with the, the finding of the freshwater mesosaur and stuff like that, yeah. where it's like this, this, okay, now, now we've got something that could be plausible. Um, not a saltwater critter living in freshwater. Uh, so yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that, but it's taken decades and decades and decades of research to get to that point. And, and still to the point of, there's a lot of deviation and we're working on that, you know? Um, so I, I want to thank you for your time, Ryan. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I love talking with people about what, what we can do to further this science and the research at hand. Uh, let everybody know where I know, uh, you're mutually going to be, I'm going to be coming up, uh, and attending the Texas Monsters and Legends conference in Cibolo, you were supposed to be one of the spe uh, featured speakers, correct? Yes, I'll be a spe uh, featured speaker at the Legends and Lore uh, conference in Cibolo, Texas on March 18th. Nice. Yeah, I can't wait. Supposed to be having those guys on to help promote it a little bit. Let everybody know where they can go to find your work, where they can get their copy of cryptids of the world, of course, other than the Curious Realm store, uh, which it's available there. But uh, let everybody know where they can go to buy your books, follow your research, follow your show, everything else, man. Of course. If you are interested in my book, uh, it's sold at most bookstores, uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, places like that. Uh, for my research, I do have... Uh, Chronicles.net, which I try to keep uh, updated as much as I can, but sometimes it can be a little outdated. But I have my podcast episodes on there with the Cryptic Chronicles uh, channel on on YouTube. My I usually have updates on my research uh, on my Facebook, Ryan Edwards. Uh, if you look up Ryan Edwards on Facebook, you'll find me there. That's where I usually have like my lec uh, my lectures, what I'm going to, what conferences I'm going to, things like that. So if you want to keep updated with me and my research, that's the best way to do it. If anyone is listening that lives in Texas, I would say highly recommend coming down to the Mon uh, Texas Monsters Legend Monsters and Legends Conference in Civil Texas on March 18th. 
Uh, it's going to be a great event. It's the first of its kind here in San Antonio. And it's going to be fun. I know I'm speaking there. I know uh, Lyle Blackburn, Ken Gerhard, yep. uh, David Weatherly. So I think it's going to be a good event. And I want to see how many people can come out because this might be the first of many. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I was very glad to see. I was very glad to even... Uh, I, I know I eked in at the last minute because it, it was one of many that just popped up on my radar like, whoa, where'd this thing come from? All right. Uh, and as I'm prone to do, especially here in my home state, I support. So uh, I got with them and became a sponsor. So we'll be out there doing our thing as typical, Ryan. So uh, expect to see you out there and, of course, have you on for a little bit of conversation while we're out there. Of course. I always love doing that. I love seeing you at conferences. I'm like, okay, awesome. I know it's going to be a good conference when I see you uh, you and your boo. <laughs> it's always fun to see everybody. Once again, the it it is uh, like a like a tight family, the uh the cryptid world. It's it's really really interesting to see. Um so I'm looking forward to it and uh hold the line real quick while we close things out, Ryan. Uh okay. well while you are online checking out everything from Texas Monsters and Legends and, of course, our good friend uh, Ryan Edwards over at Texas or the Cryptid Chronicles dot net. Make sure to stop on by Curious Realm. CuriousRealm.com is the website. That's where you can find all the episodes. That's where you can keep up with us on all forms of social media. Scroll on down and you can see. All of the great ways that you can follow, get involved. You can also donate um, and help support the show. Make sure to stop on by the Curious Realm store. Uh, all new over there. Uh, great new design. Really fantastic. Very interactive. All you do is click the book that you want from the from the guest, and bam, takes you right on over to their Amazon stuff. Uh, we've got everything there from all of our guests. So. Uh, once again, everybody, thank you so much as always for tuning in. Thank you so much for continuing to listen and take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. We'll talk to you soon. Stay curious. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Curious Realm. Stay tuned for more guests, forbidden topics, and hidden truths. Download the official Curious Realm app and view the Knowledge Vault on our website, CuriousRealm.com. Follow us on social media by searching Curious Realm. Curious Realm is available on your favorite podcast services, as well as YouTube, Roku, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV through the APR TV app, available on all app markets. Curious Realm is a proud member of the HC Universal Network family of podcasts. For more great content or to become a sponsor of Curious Realm or other podcasts, visit hcuniversalnetwork.com today. Thanks for listening. Stay curious. And remember, the other side is always watching.